and welcome to another fun, fun episode of Here's a Guy. We're back from our vacation, and we're just so thrilled to be back here with you. I am Alex, coming to you here from St. Louis, joined by my usual cast, starting with my older brother, Cody, coming to us from Illinois. Cody, how are you? I'm good. Um, I will say you you might have given us a bit of a misnomer up top. Uh, we are not back from our vacation. We are back from U2's vacations. That is true. I didn't go. I I didn't. Yeah, I didn't get to do shit fun. I had to go to work all week. Only thing I didn't do was this. Look, if you if you find a job that you truly love, every day is a vacation. Cody, you don't have to respond. Well, to when that. that happens, I will let you know. But. That doesn't do me much good right now, does it? And no one has ever found a job they love. So we're also... uh... Uh, I don't know. I think Hugh Hefner kind of got a giggle (laughs) out of whatever he was doing. We're also joined by Jack John coming to us from Indianapolis. How are you, Jack John? I'm doing great. I quite loved my vacation. Uh, I got to see our friend Pookie. And I'm sure we'll we'll go over other things later. But it was was a good little little break. I had had fun. Yeah. So... so So what we had going on last week, um, Jack John had already uh, been scheduled to uh, host our friends Pookie and Kelsey. They went to Indianapolis and went to Gen Con, which is a uh, board games convention. And it looks like they had a great time there, met up with some other cool people as well. Is that all correct? Did you enjoy yourself? Yeah, it was a ton of fun. We got to meet um, uh, Cassie um, and Josh, some great friends, um, basically from our D&D uh, Twitter uh like friend groups. It was a ton of fun just to, to get to meet some awesome people that we'd kind of known and spend way too much money on fucking board games. That's right. <laughs> I was say, how, how is your wallet feeling? I saw Cassie said something on Twitter that, uh, yeah, I, I bought a couple games. I didn't go too crazy. Uh, but, uh, there was also food trucks outside Ooh. and I spent an equal amount of time fried food that weekend. Perfect. So your wallet your wallet feels like my liver the day after I wake up after I visit you in Indianapolis then. Yes, yes. Uh, except replace every brewery that we go to with just a new t- uh, like pop-up like uh, <laughs> realtor with more cool board games. And I'm like, well, fuck, I already promised myself, but look at this cool shiny thing. And then I just do that for like so, 10 hours a day. So what was the coolest thing you got? What are you, what are you really jazzed about? Uh, in my true nerd fashion, I bought a physical book for a tabletop role-playing pro wrestling uh, simulation that I plan on running soon. I, I saw the picture of that, and I was extremely jazzed. And and while not for me, um, I did buy a fun little children's book uh, of Call of Cthulhu. Now, what, what could you possibly need that for, other than you being a child? Uh, as as it turns out, uh, this, this will be the first time saying it on on this podcast. Uh, but my wife is pregnant, which is which is exciting. Yeah. Which means that I get to buy fun, cute kid shit. Well, don't worry, we'll help you track the bastard down. <laughs> That's right, everybody. Here's a fetus. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, anyway, that's that's nice. Congratulations, Jack John. That's neat. Um, I can't wait for just the episode title this week to be "Here's a Fetus." It, it, it very well may be. Um, so he, or not, it could also not be. Yeah, but I I feel like I feel like there are much better ways to like after the first episode we do after he's actually uh, he or she. I don't know if you guys know yet, but we don't. After uh, the the aforementioned fetus uh, makes its appearance, uh, be here's a little guy. 
Aww. if it's a guy. Or here's a little gal, if it's a little gal. I love that. So no, um, just kidding. You're gonna you're gonna be way too busy to have time to do anything as fun as this. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, it's gonna be interesting in like the next year figuring out how to juggle the ten projects that I do weekly. Yeah, but not. I thought you were going away somewhere show. else with that sentence. <laughs> I really thought you were going somewhere else with that sentence, and I'm like, first of all, um, Laura's having centuplets, and also, please don't juggle them. As say, I, like it, juggling the babies probably. It's probably fine unless there are at least triplets. Yeah, then you might be in trouble. Juggling's okay as long as you're good at juggling. Wait, can can you uh, juggle? You seem you seem like a guy who who you give off vibes of a guy who can juggle. <laughs> I at one point I half jokingly said that I was going to start to learn, uh, and then I tried it, and I was like, "This is boring as shit," uh, so I stopped. I think ever juggling, since you... you seem more like a you seem more like a yo-yo guy to me. We know a yo-yo guy. I think, we do know a yo-yo guy. I think ever since um, ever since you told me you were a bowling guy, I just assume you have every random talent. It it would appear that way, but no, I've juggling to me is just like, all right, cool. Now what? I don't know. Uh, but back to the this is years. one of my one of my favorite weird uh, NFL fun factoids is AJ Green is actually a very accomplished juggler and he took it up like when he was in school to help with his hand-eye coordination specifically for football i mean that makes sense at least how much that actually helped i don't know but at, at least now you can juggle it, it, it wasn't a totally useless skill you pull that out in the supermarket somewhere people are going to pay attention if the nfl ever adds a second football uh to a play he's he's locked in I mean, I have seen some of the other guys that have played for the Bengals over the years, and they did plenty of juggling with just one ball. So, so I uh, I was also out. I was um, having a staycation because I had a rare light week. And uh, to recap what I did, on Monday, I did absolutely nothing. Uh, it was fantastic. On Tuesday, uh, that morning, since I lived at, right down the street, I decided to uh, get up that morning and just drive down to the zoo and wander around there for about an hour and a half. And Sarah and I went to Joy's Deli, and I got a sandwich, and I dropped up my dry cleaning, and that was it. Um, and on uh, uh, Wednesday, I got my hair cut, and I picked up said dry cleaning, and I went to the shaved ice place. And it was wonderful. A great three days it was. And then I went back to work. So... So the way you phrased that wander around the zoo, it gives it a much more uh, melancholy uh, quality to the sentence than one would normally expect at a zoo. Because there, there's never supposed to be sadness at a zoo. That's one of those places where if, if anyone's sad, something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. Well, I should, I guess then clarify, uh, ju just in case anybody's concerned, I love wandering around. So that's... It's like one of my favorite things to do. I, I made a I made a checklist of, of animals that I wanted to see, and I saw all of them except for one. The okapi was not outside, but the capybara, the mongoose, the red panda, the kookaburra, the kangaroo, the babarusa, there was a bear, there was a lemur, and I just put big frog, and I saw one of those. So I can't remember what they were called, but I remember there's some big frogs there. Now you you go to the zoo quite a bit. Do you hit like the same animals every time, or do you like try to like section them off? Well, what was you know you can you can cover the whole area in a day. What's kind of nice about this? Yeah, that's just, what's cool about the St. Louis Zoo. 
what was nice about this, just going by myself, is I could go in whatever order I wanted and kind of, you know, prioritize whatever I wanted. And it was a weekday, so there was barely any crowd, mainly just tourists and like one field trip. Um, and there was a large group of Mennonites as well. Um, they were having a good time, it seemed like, so good for them. Imagine you're just following a group of Mennonites, like, as engaged you would be, like, watching polar bears. Like, <laughs> that's how they interact with food. I, this is an interactive exhibit. I've never seen this one before. There's just, like, a worker, like, like hitting you in the back of that, like, stop touching the Mennonites. There actually is a... Did we cover this on the podcast at some point where some guy started a zoo and actually kept, like, a pygmy from... Some I, Amazon try yes. in it as an exhibit. That was a subtopic in in uh, one of mine. I can't remember which one. Um, I thought it. I thought we talked oh, about it, this it at was, some point. It was the 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 skull guy, the guy who got duped. Yeah. The, the pain in the ass oh, geologist. Yes. Yeah, that was uh, that, he had that guy vouch for. Him, was that guy? Yeah, not good. You shouldn't you shouldn't put people in zoos. And apologies to all our our Mennonite listeners uh, for implying even such a thing. In any event, we come back. Uh, but we can say whatever we want about the Amish because they're not allowed to listen anyway. Right, right. <laughs> so we come back, hopefully refreshed. Um, there was some stuff that happened. I did want to give just a little bit of a roundup. Um, you know, a, a yet another good reason to follow our, our Twitter account at Here's a Guy Pod is you'll see things get retweeted that serve as much as anything as, as you know, kind of pins for stuff to mention. So um, there, were, there were a few goings on I wanted to mention. Um First of all, um, what was her name? What was the lady's name? Uh, Carolyn Bryant, um, after um, decades as a fugitive, was uh, taken into custody. And the sight of an extremely, extremely old woman with an oxygen tank getting taken to jail would be jarring until you find out that Carolyn Bryant was Emmett Till's false accuser. So, first of all, holy shit, Emmett Till's false accuser is still alive. Yeah, it is shocking how recent that was. Like, people hear that and they think it must have happened in, like, 1905. No, that was the fucking 50s. I Love Lucy was on TV when this happened. Yeah, yeah. There's a a guy who, my guy this week was born by then and wound up uh, being a teammate of Chris Mullen, if that tells you anything. Yeah. So, so there was that. That That was a real bummer. Um... But uh, speaking of people who, uh, well, speaking of people who aren't alive, we had a, we had a first for the show, which is um, we had a, a past topic uh, pass away um, after being discussed on the show. Cody, if you if you do you want to take this one? Yes. Um, I I don't know how to tell you this. I know it's it's going to be heartbreaking for a lot of you, um, or maybe 30 of you out there in the sphere somewhere, because that was roughly how many followers he had. Um, the one true Pope, yep. uh, Pope Michael of Topeka, Kansas has, yep. uh, uh, he snuffed it here recently. He is, uh, he's pushing up the daisies. So yeah, he was, uh, he was the re- um... rest in power to uh, the, the one true mouthpiece of God. What are we going to do now? Oh, we don't, don't have know. a Pope anymore. I've been feeling I've been feeling real down since it happened. For those of you who remember, this was the fake pope that Cody discussed in episode thirty-five, which was named in his honor. Episode thirty-five, I'm your pope now. Um, 
passed away for undisclosed reasons in Kansas. And, um, you know, uh, just another, Which another is how I hope to go another, oh, another shining light in the world Jesus. of all the states to die of undisclosed reasons. That is one of them. I feel like if you die in Kansas, they're just like, does anyone give a shit? Undisclosed reasons. I think the most undisclosed reasons death state is probably like Montana, then maybe yeah. New Jersey, and then Wyoming. Kansas. And I'd say then Kansas, then Wyoming. I feel like if you die for whatever reason in New Jersey, it's deemed natural causes because you were just in New Jersey. Like, it's, it's expected to happen. Yeah, this is where people come to die. That is an effect of being in New Jersey. <laughs> No, I, I actually um, – I will be taking a trip down to a state that has a lot of uh, undisclosed reasons on death certificates uh, for my segment. So keep your, your ears open there. Fantastic. <clears throat> so um, another bummer there, but uh, another event we wanted to mention. This one much less of a bummer. Nobody this... patre et fili et spiritus sancti. Rest in peace. I'm amazed you – Mike. I, yeah, I know that that's – I know that you remember that from uh, Boondock Saints, but I'm still impressed you also, remember the exact it, it was, wording. Well, you know what's really crazy is when I heard that, I had taken enough um, classes that required me to learn the meanings of Latin words. Is that When I heard that, I'm like, holy shit, I understand that. I know what that means. That's ridiculous. I should not know that. As it comes to shock to nobody, I, I know that it's from Boondock Saints, but I'm more associated with the A Day to Remember song. That's right, the song 1958. A Day to Remember, who I may be uh, seeing uh, this weekend. We'll see. Oh, TBD. Yeah. But um, yeah. after it, putting out their first good song in like seven years. So in much less bummer news, uh, this week we did commemorate a very special anniversary here around the uh, the, the halls of uh, Here's a Guy headquarters. It was... Um, Dave Matthews dumps a bunch of shit on a tour boat in Chicago day. What a joyous day it yeah. is. For those the who don't know. was on this week. What, what year was it? What did this happen? I know it was, I, it was like 2004, I think. Or maybe, maybe it was before that. Maybe it was like 01. No, you're right. It was 2004. 04, so, okay. That's right. For those who don't know, and, and we can't... Oh, I... But before we get into this, uh, Jack John just said it. He wished Mitch was here. I was really bummed. I retweeted uh, something from Here's a Guy with the most obvious Mitch bait I had ever posted, and did, he he didn't bite. He's getting too smart for us. He's a crafty one, that Mitch. He's a sly fella. <laughs> so, um, the, the, similarly, several weeks ago, probably like a month ago now, um, uh, the Here's a Guy account uh, did retweet something just random uh, about how badly the Marlins have been doing, and uh, Jack John didn't take that bait. So, it It's like, it's obvious. It's one of those things <laughs> where it's just like, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like when you guys make fun of me for being bald. I'm like, yeah, I know, but come on. Like, I gotta tell you it's not true, but... That also must have been the rare day I wasn't on Twitter because I absolutely would have reacted to that if I saw it. But yeah, no, uh, the Marlins are shit. Um, well, speak, I have no defense. Speaking of shit, D um, despite having a uh, potential Cy Young candidate, they are still yeah, garbage. That the Cardinals pretty much just gave you for for Marcelo Zuna. So, and I can't wait to give that player to somebody else. Hell, maybe the Cardinals will take him back. <laughs> 
Um, on August 8th, 2004, for those who don't know, uh, the Dave Matthews Band was on tour. Took a little stop in uh, Chicago over the Kinsey Street Bridge um, and decided this was a uh, decent place to um, uh, dump the uh, human waste from the tour bus's Blackwater tank. And so uh, over the side of the bridge went 800 pounds of uh, human piss and shit, which is irresponsible enough, um, but even worse, um, a uh, passenger sightseeing boat was passing underneath and they dumped this human waste just uh, on top of all these people's heads. So that was now 18 years ago and uh, I'm sure the scars still remain to this day. So th I, thank you, Dave I Matthews fan for that little bit of entertainment. The first, <laughs> the first time you've ever entertained me. What I love about that story is that there are two different scenarios that are very interesting to put yourself in involved in that story. First of all, think about being the bus driver who just released that and then sees the boat coming and realizes what he just did. I can't even I can't even imagine what emotion that would bring out. Like, what do you even do when you have fucked up that badly? It's like it's like those kids and I know what you did last summer after they ran over the guy. It's like what do you do? Yeah, when, when you dump all your shit over the side of a bridge and you suddenly start hearing screams from below, that's a real a real dagger in the heart moment, you know. Unless this guy was just a total psychopath and he was like, <laughs> I mean, he was which is also Matthews a funny band. scenario to imagine. He was turned with Dave Matthews, but he may have been an actual psychopath. Yeah, um, but also imagine yourself being in the boat right as the contents are being unleashed and you know what's about to happen, but it hasn't yet. You just see shit 50 feet above you and you're just like, there's no way that's not hitting me in the face right now. I I would just be, I would just be refusing to believe it until it finally hit. Well, I would be like, this is too stupid. There is no way this is actually happening. Splash. Oh well, my God. This actually happened. Well, Look, it would be tragic enough, but here's a little known fact that makes it even worse. Um, these weren't just any any ordinary tourists. These happen to be um, uh, people on a break from the uh, looking at the sky with your mouth open convention passing underneath. <laughs> a horrible, and this was horrible uh, Dave Matt. And this was, of course, on Dave Matthews' landmark whiskey and flaming hot Cheetos tour. So oh, really, boy. just worlds colliding in the the worst possible way. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, thank you to Dave Matthews Band for that timeless moment. But um, um, we celebrate August 8th, a, a momentous day for one of the great guy events in recent history. So, well, I, I think we're all caught up to speed here um, on what's been going on with us in the world. And I know we're just, just chomping at the bit to get back into discussing some guys. So let, let's, let's get to it here. Jack John... Hopefully you're uh, you're all refreshed from the couple weeks off from your vacation. So can you help me out? Uh, yeah, I think I remember it. It's uh, the guys. That was Perfect. one of your better ones, I think. He he never forgets. He never forgets. Well, and, and I, I, I think I remember it. And let, let's carry that momentum uh, forward because you're up first. Who's your guy this week? Uh, before I go into this week's guy, I, I need to give a little bit of background about what I'm going to do today. Uh, about three weeks ago, I had a friend on Twitch uh, who goes by the name Benjamins, which is adorable, and I love it. 
Um, and <laughs> they found out uh, about the podcast and we talked a little bit. And afterwards, they listened to a few of our episodes, which was incredible. Uh, and the next We're sorry. Time, <laughs> and they somehow came back. Uh, but um, after they found out about the podcast, they recommended um, the topic that I'm going to go over today. Uh, but before I even kind of like do that, I need to mention uh, that the topic that Benjamin's gave me is a pain in the ass. Um, in that it's really the really guy's a pain in the ass, or the topic's a pain in the ass. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, I figured. And, uh-huh. and last episode uh, that we did is in part to that. Uh, and if you remember last episode, episode forty, the wonderful ball of shit, I covered Jeffrey Erickson, better known as the bearded bandit. That's right. Very fun mm-hmm. segment. Uh, for today's guy, I found Jeffrey and countless other men competing in that research because of the similarity between the two topics. Okay. Ad nauseum. Because um, as it turns out, the moniker The Bearded Bandit was just abused in uh, news reports and columns and media all throughout the 90s and 2000s. Mm-hmm. More on that later. Okay. With that, today's guy is Brett Ryan. Brett Ryan was born in 1981 to a very loving family in Scarborough, a suburb on the east end of Toronto in Canada. We got a Canadian this week. Another Canadian. Starting to rack him up there, eh? (laughs) Tell y'all about him. Brett was born to parents Susan Ryan and William Ryan. Susan was a noted housewife, gardener, and beloved Blue Jays fan, which automatically makes her quite quite the parent to raise somebody. And we combine that with <laughs> the fuck's William. that supposed to mean? <laughs> I don't know. I was gonna make a Blue Jays <laughs> joke there, and in my notes, I just kind of trailed off. Uh, I have nothing against the Blue Jays. Would make her pretty happy right now. Would have been an okay way to go with that. Yeah. Um, I'm we'll sure get it in post. It's okay. I'm sure. I'm sure Joe Carter's a wonderful parent. Just want to throw that out. One of the most <laughs> underrated uh, players. And a rad dude. Hmm. I don't watch much baseball anymore because it all makes me sad. So my knowledge of the I will say though keep up season to season. I will say though, if you are wanting to watch some baseball and not think about the Marlins woes, Toronto's a pretty fun team to watch. Yeah. You get to watch uh, Matt Chapman do his thing over at third and watch Vladdy Jr. hit some some moonshots. You're you're doing okay. And a really cool looking stadium on top of that, Rogers Center. Big fan. And uh, three different uh, MLB Hall of Famers' kids. That's <laughs> right. That. Uh, but, uh, also, uh, to Father William, who worked for the Toronto Star. And uh, their two parents uh, seem to be basically just great figures in the neighborhood, as well as pretty overall, like, straight-up middle-class parents. Uh, they raised uh, their children, a total of four sons, um, to be very outgoing and very part of the neighborhood. Um, so we had, of course, Brett Ryan, and then his older brother Christopher, and younger brothers Alexander and Lee. Um, while Ryan's uh, growing up was seen as outgoing, he was also uh, considered to be popular and uh, lived a pretty uh, average social life. Uh, he was well liked amongst his peers and was often seen as um, one who would party and would spend what he could monetarily on his friends. He was the kind of person who would kind of go out of their way to show you affection through spending. Yeah, okay. always, always nice to have a couple not, guys like that around. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not the healthiest way to relate to people. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, but if you've got good friends that don't abuse it, then yeah, obviously everyone's going to appreciate you for it. Yeah. Uh, and it was also said that in his free time... Don't know time, what the fuck that's like, but... <laughs> in his free time, Brett would also volunteer at a local hospital and would even referee Little League games. So just all around a good dude. Yeah, it, it takes a lot of patience to umpire a Little League game. I did that for a summer when I was in high school. Never fucking again. <laughs> And it's not even the kids. The parents oh, and yeah. the coaches are just such complete twats. Yeah. How, how you got out of that summer without getting in a fist fight is, is it's still beyond me. Yeah, and me too. Yeah. I'll, yeah. There, there's, there's some fun stuff from that, but we won't get into it on the podcast. I feel like Cody got in a fist fight. It's just none on the record. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, there, there were some moments. Anyway. Uh, but, uh, Brett would then go on to attend Toronto University, and pretty much like every guy that I cover, for whatever reason, Brett would not finish and would end up dropping out of college. Now on hard times and low on cash, Brett would turn to old reliable robbing banks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course. This is here's a guy after all. That is that is an interesting turn to take from yeah, I just I'm not really sure what I want to do yet. I haven't found anything that clicks with me, but I need, you know, something to keep me going for right now. Oh, I'll commit one of the hardest crimes there is. Let's try that. I think I'd be good at it. Like, can't you just start by pushing over an old lady or something? Just warm up to it. Well, only if you take her purse, because otherwise that's not really a warm up. That's just elder <laughs> abuse. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah, now you've just assaulted an old woman and you're still broke. <laughs> Which you might, depending on how old and frail she is, might wind up costing you more time than the bank robbery. During the years of 2007-2008, Brett would go on a tear through Toronto and the surrounding area, robbing a total of 14 banks. Now, God man- damn. Now, the fucking man- natural here. Right? The kid coming out of left field just stealing everything. Now, how would a man of Brett's nature handle such a task? Unlike Jeffrey Erickson, our previous guy, Brett was not versed in police tactics, trained in armed combat, and lacked crucial connections to make the job easy. Well, Brett simply dressed up as an old man and demanded money. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure. You mean he just went in there and was like, give me 50 bucks. Come I'm on, do I'm very it. old. Please compensate me. Adorned with a gray beard, medical bandages covering his face, and one arm in a sling, Brett would slide the teller a a slip of paper saying that he was armed and demanded money. And this shit worked 14 times. (laughs) Okay, if it were me, just based on that disguise, if I'm the bank teller, that's the guy I'm taking the gamble with. Yeah. (laughs) That's the guy I'm going to say no to. He looks like he's half dead. What was notable that is like at this point, like Brett is still like in his like like late twenties, early thirties. Like he's still like a young looking dude. He's just wearing an old man, like clear old man disguise. We've got a bad community theater actor in here <laughs> robbing this bank. Yeah. He would just slide them a piece of paper and say, I have a gun, and now I will have all of your money. And I imagine Canadian bank tellers are too polite and they just go, Okay. Also, turn that TV in the corner to Lawrence Welk, or I swear to God, I'll burn this place to the ground. 
So this happens 14 times in the Toronto area. And like all good stories and all good police um, units, the police caught Brett the dumbest way possible. See, Toronto had been being ravaged by the fake beard bandit, as he'd known to be called. Mm-hmm. And as his robberies totaled up to 14, uh, everyone was on high alert. Brett, the true brainiac, decides that now is the great time to trade himself to a little bit of the lavish lifestyle that he would love to have. You know, at this point, Brett's estimated earnings from theft, earnings, quote-unquote, uh, totaled about $28,000. A pretty handsome get. Um, so I mean... That- it- whether whether theft equals earnings depends yeah. on who you're stealing it from, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Like, if you knock out Jeff Bezos and take 50 <laughs> grand off him, yeah, you earned that, 100%. Uh, but Brett goes to a very fine store in Toronto, and he decides to buy a very high-priced item as a reward for his tough work. You it was need- a new fake beard, wasn't it? There's no fucking way. That there's no way. There is absolutely no way that's what he actually bought. Tell me that is not what he bought. If you don't tell me that is not what he bought, I'm going to throw this, myself out this, of this window. This is one yes, of these, it's on the first floor, but I will still do it. This is one of these moments where I I I, I do wish we had video for you to all see Jack John's face. <laughs> Brett goes to a costume shop. God. And buys a high-quality fake beard. <laughs> now they'll call me the real beard bandit. They'll think it's legit. Was was there was there a description of, of what the new higher-quality beard looked like? I, I imagine that after 14 robberies, the beard is probably weathered and torn. And just like a nice, like, like silk, very, very lush, high, high uh, beard count. I don't know how you grade a fake beard. Uh, but I imagine a very luxurious-looking beard, and the price tag probably said, like, for true criminals or something like that. <laughs> now, this is slightly different than... The, the fake beard bandit is slightly different than a fake beard bandit, which is a description that could be applied to um, a certain friend of mine for, uh, growing up, who I won't name, who I did once witness shoplift a fake beard. <laughs> Did he wear it out? Yeah, that's what I was saying. Uh, uh, he, he did not wear it out. That would have been a little too much. But it did wind up getting a, a featured in a certain movie that we made later. But anyway, let's 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 move on. Um, so this high quality beard at the costume shop was obviously a plant, and was alerted to the police. And the police then began to trail and find the whereabouts and location and identity of a one Brett Ryan. But yeah. So wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. When you say this beard was a plant. Do you mean that they put the beard there assuming that he would come and buy it at some point? So, or were they just like, hey, if you sell somebody a fake beard, please let us know. Or, or was the beard what? a plant? Like it was made out of trumpet vine. <laughs> it's, it's not a beard. It's just a ficus. He's wearing a ficus on his head. Uh, no, like, from what I read, it was that he bought this fake beard and then the police like were alerted of that. Um, whether Oh, so the shop was just like, hey... Or like there was like a, a like a, a an alert out that was like, hey, if anyone buys a fake beard, let us know. Halloween's but... gonna suck in that city. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, right now there's really no like 
Prime. All all the Brett Simmons just buy a fake beard that's apparently very expensive. So what happens is the police end up taking out Brett and like following his every move. And after about three weeks, uh, the police catch Brett attempting to rob the TD Canada Bank while wearing that new expensive beard he just bought. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, you, you can't walk in with a shiny new beard. It's too obviously fake. For uh, a different beard that was legally purchased, but was also used in a film, um, something I did to make it look, because it came out very shiny, and um, that's not what I wanted it to look like. So yeah. I just like took it out into the dri- driveway and like ran over it with my car a bunch of times. <laughs> and I also like took it out to the to the um, to the garden and, and uh, beat it with a bat a whole bunch. Also, <laughs> you, you gotta you gotta season that thing before you wear it. You know, it's like a mint. Kids, kids, remember this. Just because something is newer and more expensive does not mean it's better than old reliable. Okay, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Now, now, Alex, with that, with that beard, did you also take a baseball um, and then tie a rubber band around it, oil it up, and really, really make sure that it had the, the kind of crease you wanted in it? And then, like, well, you know, that's a good idea, but it wasn't quite violent enough for what I was going for. <laughs> you see. Um. So the Toronto police end up apprehending Brett just outside of bank number 15, and Brett confesses to his crimes. And Yeah, um, you gotta. Yeah. While he's uh, brought to court, uh, Brett was facing 29 counts totaling robbery, uh, weapons charges, and re- disguise-related offenses, uh, is what I read. The technical, it said... Uh, <laughs> 29 robbery, weapons, and disguise-related charges in a Toronto so, article that I read. Are you telling me that in Canada it is illegal to be in disguise? I imagine... That is somehow a crime? I imagine in relation to committing a crime, the disguise itself is somehow illegal. I'm not... I, that sets a very strange precedent. Um... But uh, what's really interesting, though, is at the trial, uh, the judge notes that while the acts were numerous, uh, Brett technically didn't harm anyone physically uh, during the robberies, probably emotionally. I'm sure all of those tellers are scarred, having been robbed by an old man. <laughs> but no real physical violence uh, really ever occurred. Um, and there was no indication of any violence in his past or in his future. Uh, Brett was just a kid who needed money and got caught doing the wrong thing, albeit 14 times. Um, and the judge, right, yeah, uh, albeit 14 times, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the judge, 14th time was the only wrong one. He did it just fine, the other 13. Yeah. Uh, but the judge um, kind of errs on the side of leniency here in a, in a nice, uh, depending on your scope of it, uh, and uh, sentences Brett to, thir- uh, to three years and nine months in prison, as opposed to the prosecutor's requested 10 years. The judge did so, citing that Brett's familial connection uh, was strong, and it seemed that while Brett was in connection with his family more, uh, that he seemed to be doing less harm to himself and to others. And the judge also required that uh, Brett seek therapy, um, mandating that he go to at least seven sessions, um, which I thought was quite pleasant. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know... If you're going to continue putting people in prison, that's the kind of shit you should probably be focusing on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Instead rarely. of just throwing them in, you know, general population with an hour of yard time every day and the rest of the time you're getting your ass beat. You know, that's. 
the one time they try re- restorative justice, and it's uh, uh, the fake beard bandit. <laughs> all right. All this, all this seems for reform, Brett, uh, for the most part, at least. Uh, Brett, shortly after uh, getting out, ended up finding a girlfriend on a blind date. Everything seemed to go well there. Uh, they ended up falling in love. <laughs> she was a bank teller. <laughs> um, they ended up falling in love. Brett ends up going back to college. Uh, he even ends up getting a job in IT. Um, and even though that Brett's new girlfriend knows about his fake beard bandit past, she's completely willing to, to put that aside and, you know, say that Brett is a new changed man. Now, I don't um, like to I don't like to speculate too much on this kind of thing, but just 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 hear me out. Do you yeah. think that uh, do you think that he wears the beard, you know, <laughs> when they're, you know, my think that does something confirm or deny that. Well, yes, but incidentally, it was because she'd always had a fantasy about being with a member of ZZ Top. <laughs> hey, who doesn't? Well, at this point, we know that he every girl crazy beards. about a sharp dressed man. Am that's, I right? That's right. At this, at this point, we know that there are two beards that they both wear a beard. That could be something. <laughs> There's probably fanfic like that. Hey, listen, more power to him, you know. Yeah. Uh, but everything goes great for Jeff until. You see, uh, Jeff's new job, his IT job, turns out they didn't know about his criminal past. Okay. <laughs> and shortly after finding out, um, Jeff's job just fires him outright. Uh, which so, is yeah, you know, you know this former criminal that we have apparently hired that's done nothing wrong since he was here? Uh, you know how to make sure he never commits crime again? <laughs> Put him out on the street yeah. with no job. Yeah, continue yeah, to punish that'll him. Do, that'll result in wonderful yeah. things for everyone. Yeah, continue to punish him after he's paid his debt to society. That'll show him. Yeah. Uh, which unfortunately leaves Jeff now reliant on his mother for financial support. Uh, I'm sorry, I put um, put Jeff there. It's uh, Brett. I don't know why I did a weird thing. Uh, but now, um, now living with his girlfriend, uh, now turned fiance, uh, and they're now engaged, uh, Brett is now caught in a very dangerous situation. He is now lying to his fiance, claiming that his job is now remote and he's working from home. Uh, okay. He doesn't want to admit that he's lost his job to his fiance. You know, I I don't have a ton of real world experience with this <laughs> because believe it or not, in my adult life, I have not managed to fuck up this badly. But, you know... Sometimes when you realize, okay, I fucked up and we have a problem now. It's, pretending it's not there. Like, you j- just tell people it's going to be so much better. There is no way it's not going to turn out better. This kind of shit is not sustainable. You can't do it for very long. This is, this is like, yeah, this is starting to become some real George Costanza shit. Also, uh... Wasn't a wasn't like pretending you're at work when you're actually just just doing nothing all day. Wasn't that like what Casey Anthony did? <laughs> yeah, not not the most serious of her offenses, arguably, but um, but basically, um, the reason that he couldn't find a job, um, presumably after uh, being fired, is not only due to his criminal past, uh, but he also lied about finishing his college degree. Because uh, he had dropped out as well after going back to college. So, yeah, so you, you, can't, you can't be doing that. 
I you I know, mean you th- can. This is an un- <laughs> this is an unpopular opinion, but I think it should be fair game to lie on your resume. I know it's not, hence yeah. why I'm not going to do it. But like, if they catch, they catch it. But if not, yeah. you know, can you really be that upset? Yeah, there's. I don't think there's a crime for lying on your resume. No. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I feel like it's like the 15 minutes after the professor's late to class thing. Like, if I haven't fucked up or been fired, and you haven't caught on within yeah. like a year of me being at this job, you are no longer allowed to fire me for that. Absolutely. Um, so, so all of this is happening now, um, with uh, with Brett being very very reliant on his uh, parents for. Um, basically money doing odd jobs around the house, basically just to cover for his life right now. And this all comes to a head one month before the wedding. Brett's mom basically threatens to cut him off financially and says that he must come clean uh, to his now fiance, soon to be wife, where the money supply will run out. Will run out. Panicked, Brett realizes all of his options and he decides to do the one thing that makes the most sense. Oh, Jesus. No, Brett... Don't do it, Brett. Brett, no. <laughs> Think this one through. You've come so far. In order to I make would like all this to go think away. This is, I would like to think this is actually the thing that makes the least sense. Uh, that's what I would argue, but I'm not Brett. In order to make this all go away, Brett begins to plot to kill his mother. Oh. Well, oh, now, that was a hell of a left turn. Now, let me just say. <laughs> That's not what I was expecting him to do. <laughs> it is worse than what I was expecting him to do. I thought he was going to go rob another bank. Yeah, I was all ready to do the Pacino just when I thought I was out and they pull me back in thing, but you've thrown me a curveball here. I got nothing for this. Uh, Brett plants a crossbow in his mother's house. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, that's not, To be clear, it's not funny to do that. But it, it's, it's like... It's funny that it's a crossbow. It's the funniest of the weapons that you could choose to do this, this unfunny thing, you know? Yes. Like, where do you even get a crossbow? Except for like, (laughs) unless he had rigged up some large spring loaded apparatus with a boxing glove on the end of it. But yeah, short of that, a crossbow is about the the dumbest way you could do this. Uh, Brett then gets a new phone and a new laptop and sets them up in his own apartment to establish an alibi as to where he is going to be the day he goes over to his mother's house. It's already too convoluted, man. <laughs> However, unfortunately for Brett, and fortunately for everyone else in reality, uh, Brett just couldn't be asked to set up the phones or the laptop, so they just remained like unturned on, unregistered, like they just existed. But they, his alibi just immediately falls through. They were still in the box. Work. Pretty much from what they, like, they weren't even, like, turned on. Uh, but Brett goes... Also, the idea that you can prove that you were home all day by setting up a laptop connected to the internet and allowing, like, expecting your IP address to do the work for you, if that doesn't work unless you're actually doing stuff on the internet. Like, if you just leave it there connected the whole day, they're just like, oh, he left his computer on. That doesn't prove shit. Like he's got YouTube autoplay going on all day, and he's like, "What? I was watching all these videos in a row." (laughs) I can't believe Uh, this guy. How many times do you really need to see I'm a banana? (laughs) I can't believe this guy. Ten hour version at one point. I can't believe this guy cut corners in a plot to kill his mother. (laughs) 
<laughs> like of all the things, that's the one you can't half-ass. I'm pretty sure yeah. if you if you want to pull it off. Yeah. So, so Brett goes. You just over. gotta be. You gotta be a certain type of person to pull off matricide, and yeah. <laughs> a, a habitual half-asser is not the type of person, which is what he seems to be. So. Brett goes over there, and uh, the argument with his mother begins to get heated. Uh, so much so that his mother, Susan, ends up calling the brother, Christopher, to come over and basically to help and intervene and basically talk some sense into Brett. In the meantime, Brett then goes into the garage, grabs the crossbow, and shoots and kills his mother. So he hit it in the garage. Yes. I really hope he just like hung it up uh, above the workbench with like all the saws and shit and hope nobody noticed. It's like it's on two hooks where it's just like prominently displayed displayed and he's just like, Alright, it's time. So uh <laughs> his dad his dad's setting up to do some repairs around the basement. Alright. Uh ball peen hammer, screwdriver, screws, saw, crossbow. But wait, what? No, <laughs> That's not, not supposed to be there. Though. So, so one time, one of my friends, the same one who shoplifted the beard earlier, actually, he uh, he invited me over. Said a, a couple of the guys were over at his place, and they were, and they they attempted to set a trap for me by uh, uh, setting up like an elaborate series of strings with a a cup of water that was sitting over the top <laughs> of the door, where me walking through would trip it and it would fall on my head, and it, it completely failed and didn't work, and so um, I. <laughs> open the door and I see this thing up top not falling. I just hear, God damn it! And he runs out, grabs the cup of water and just throws it in my face. So this is <laughs> this apparently was the much darker, uh, less fun version yes. of that. Yeah. Uh-oh. The brother Christopher then comes over. Um, unfortunately for Christopher, Brett knew this was going to happen and was hiding in the house and then shoots his brother in the head with a crossbow. Um, at some point in the middle of uh, Christopher coming over, he'd also contacted his other brother, Alexander. Um, so while Brett is like essentially hiding the bodies, uh, Susan and Christopher, Alexander comes over and is then shot again. So Brett has now killed his mother and two of his three brothers. So I, I just imagine cross, every though. time. So I just imagine every time somebody new walks in the house, he's like, Oh, come on! <laughs> How many of you am I going to have to kill? It's like a bad sitcom episode. And lastly, his brother Lee comes home, who lived there, and sees all of this. Okay, and... well, you should have seen that one coming. <laughs> and for whatever reason, Brett isn't able to get a shot or misses his shot. And Lee is able to escape and alert the authorities, uh, to which Brett is then shortly after arrested and fully commits um, to all of the other shit that he has now done, thus giving him the second nickname, the Crossbow Killer. Well, that is certainly an update in coolness factor. Um. Uh I just imagine that when Lee got to the police station and was telling them what happened, the cops are all like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah, my brother shot my whole family to death with a crossbow. Sure, kid, get the fuck out of here. We got shit to do. And then just go back to watching Judge Judy or whatever they actually do all day. Um, 
Brett is then sentenced to three consecutive life sentences for the three murders and one attempted murder. Um, and that is the story of uh, Brett Ryan, the fake beard bandit turned crossbow killer. Um, and I just wanted to say as a quick aside, the reason this was such a pain in the ass to research is in during my research, I found no fewer than six fucking fake beard bandits. <laughs> well, was... apparently it's a popular, it's a popular uh, accoutrement for, for the bank robber. There were fake beard bandits in Tulsa, Boston, Chicago, which we covered last week, Newport, and a special fake beard fedora bandit in Sacramento. God damn it, I hate this now. We're going to find out eventually that this is like uh, the Court of Owls in Batman, <laughs> and there's like one in every city, and somebody sends out the call, and he suddenly wakes up and remembers <laughs> his programming. There was also a Canadian actor named Brett Ryan and a current Major League Baseball player named Ryan Brett. Oh. A complete pain in the ass to Google and research this topic. So one one more thing before you get to uh, where you're going to wrap this up. You said uh, three consecutive life sentences is what he got for those three murders? Yes. If I ever go down for multiple murders, I'm going to ask them to sentence me to non-consecutive life sentences because I want to serve a life sentence, then be dead for a little while, then have him bring me back, put me back in prison till I die again. And then, you know, Can I get a that is how that works, life? right? Yeah. Uh, but that's the story of Brett Ryan. My big question to you guys, I was trying to figure out um, how to tie this topic and the last topic together. So after hearing both of these stories, which would you rather be, the fake beard bandit or the crossbow killer? Well, the fake beard bandit's not doing three consecutive life sentences, so uh, I'm gonna go but, with uh, I'm gonna go with him. But the first fake beard bandit also did either suicide by cop or just plain suicide. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, kind of an uh, interesting philosophical uh, question there yeah. as to which is worse. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm still I'm still gonna go with guy number one because uh, guy number two murdered his entire family <laughs> with a crossbow, and despite you know, besides just the fact that that's not something I would do, that sounds kind of difficult. Like I've never <laughs> used a crossbow before. I don't know if I'm competent. Yeah, I'm just I I'm I'm not gonna be as harebrained about it. I'm going with guy number one. I'm also gonna go with guy number one just because he he kind of trailblazed this type of guy. And, yeah. you know, if, if you're going to go down badly, which, uh, uh, spoiler alert, you will. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you at least go down as, as the first. Yeah. Or I think a lesson we can learn from both of these guys is maybe stop at around 10 banks. Yeah. Like, you don't need to keep robbing banks. You can get away with a couple banks and live, it looks like. It's like I said on a, on a recent episode, like, one of the things I've learned throughout the course of the show, it's just amazing how many people are willing to Icarus themselves. Yes. And and this yeah. was yet another example of that. I, I think it's, I think it's basically the same thing as like having a gambling problem. Like you get one win, one big win where you walk away with 500 bucks you didn't have before. And now you're just going to be chasing that until you lose. Yeah. Uh, I think I agree with you guys. I think it would take, uh, guy number one from last week uh simply just because he wasn't a fucking idiot 
This is like, true. Yeah. yeah. Like the more I researched about about Brent Ryan, I was just like, why do you keep doing this to yourself? What are you doing? Yeah. I mean, a lot of that, uh, a lot of the stuff he did with the costume, like the old man stuff, the bandage. I understand that maybe that helps obscure your identity a little bit more, but a lot of it just seemed really redundant and like it would probably slow you down. I also love And also it makes you swing. stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> it's the um uh like the sling, like the bandages, like you're just you're a cartoon character going to rob a bank at this point. Like what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah, you're a cartoon character who just got hit by a bus or something. And now you're head to toe in bandages with a crutch. Well, thank you for that, Jack John. Very fun opening topic. And so for, for topic number two, we turn to Cody. Cody, who is your guy this week? I got to tell you, I'm excited for this one. Uh, this is a wild story. This guy's credentials for being a guy. I When I put them all together, it's like that meme with Vince McMahon just getting gradually more and more geeked <laughs> right. at every level. All right. This guy, like, this guy's from Florida. He is oh. from a rich Southern family. He is a folklorist. He is involved in civil rights. Just give me more. Also, he's got a banger of a name. We're talking Stetson Kennedy tonight, folks. Ooh. That is a good name. That takes all the boxes. Hell yeah. So, as I mentioned a moment ago, Stetson Kennedy is a Florida guy, born in 1916 in Jacksonville, Florida. That is the shithole part of Florida, not the beachy part of Florida. Yeah, that is the taint of Florida. Mm -hmm. And folks, uh, I know that for reasons that I can't possibly imagine, we haven't done a ton of Florida content so far. Um, so we haven't talked too much shit yet. Um, so I'm going to make up for that here this evening. Um, he came from an extremely wealthy family, and I mean like rich, rich, old school Southern aristocrats. He was a descendant of multiple signers of the Declaration of Independence and was related to many notable people, including the founder of the Stetson Hat Company. Um, which was the go-to for what we now call cowboy hats. That's right. Um, that is where he gets his name. His his middle name is Stetson, but that's what he went by. But it was his mother's maiden name, and that's why they named him that uh, for middle name. Is there any uh, that, um, is there any connection to Stetson University? Yes, uh, same guy. <clears throat> oh, cool. Same guy uh, that university was named after him. That's how fucking rich he was. Say, hey, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, I wasn't giving anything away there, but. I, I did make. Nope. No, that was literally the next sentence I was going to get to. That was a perfectly <laughs> timed question. Right um, yeah, I went to Stetson University. Sounds like uh, something you say in a movie, like right before you have your showdown with Billy the Kid in front of the saloon. <laughs> About to take you to Stetson University. Um, he also had an uncle who was a high-ranking member of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, uh, that's less cool. There it is. Yeah, the, the less fun hat. Yeah, are you telling me that a, um, that a that a rich person had a connection to a shadowy racist uh, secret society? Yeah, I, the Southern aristocracy is that is so out of character for them. But you know, sometimes lightning strikes. Um, well, you know, I mean, it still exists in some. I mean, here in St. Louis, we have the Veiled Prophet, which is kind of the well, same shit. 
there is a little town uh, near where we grew up that we know still as as recent as when we were in high school had an active official clan chapter. That's so, right. Yep. And I can't imagine uh, that it. I, I I assume it's still there because uh, I, I can't imagine any of these people found anything better to do. So. Yeah, that that's one of those communities that just gets worse over time. Like there there's no progress ever made. You're just fermenting in your own idiocy. Um, so from a young age, Stetson Kennedy fell in love with Florida and its culture, which just goes to show you that nobody's perfect. Um, it is, I mean, not to completely bash Florida, but it's hard to imagine somebody falling in love with a culture whose touchstone is just headlines that look like Mad Libs. Yeah, I, I'm trying to picture the culture for Jacksonville. And all I can just imagine is drunk Jaguars fans, which don't exist yet. So I'm interested to see what culture <laughs> he found so fascinating. Yeah, it, it's the only state in the U.S. whose main import is cocaine and whose main <laughs> export is also cocaine. Yeah, Shad Khan's it's, the one. It's drunk, got its own little DNA there. Shad Khan's the one drunk Jaguars fan, and that's just because he owns the team. Khan <laughs> is just drunk as hell. Also there. Mm-hmm. And Trevor Lawrence. Well, sure. <laughs> God bless. If I were him, I'd be drinking quite a bit these days. Um, so anyway, uh, Kennedy at this young age really became interested, especially in the folklore of the area. And this is where I kind of sympathize with him. We've talked about it a little bit in the context of especially like horror stories when Pookie's been on. I love a good folktale. Yeah. I, I love folklore. It is literally basically what we do. And the, the reason that we like doing what we do is because we like shit like this. Um, so he began reading a bunch of Florida, uh, Florida folklore and even began writing poetry about his home state. Cool. I, uh, I did not look up any of his poems about Florida. So I decided uh, to just give you an example of what I think a poem about Florida might sound yes. like. Yes. All right. It's just a short one. Nothing special. Twixt Everglades and Bayou, past Marsh and Orange Grove, I met a great misfortune when into the swamp I dove. For therein lay a gator awaiting me with bated breath. And though he did not get me, he swallowed all my meth. Yeah, was gonna, I, there was going to be a meth reference in there. Yeah. I was waiting for it. Yeah. Very nice. Thank you. So, no, no. Thank you. I promise I will stop shitting on Florida for a second and actually tell the story. <laughs> Alex and um, I make no promises. <laughs> well, that's that's fine. You're not the one who's uh, tasked with getting through this. So, um, His opinions on race relations were also set in a very specific direction at a young age. Um, as one might expect, the family he came from was not what you would call terribly concerned with racial justice. Um, or at least not in the context of making sure people have more of it. Um, there was at least one who was very much concerned with racial just, just, justice, but in the entire opposite direction. Hmm. Um, but like many wealthy Southern families, they also employed black servants. One of these servants was a, uh, a maid named Flo, who I like to imagine was Flo Rida's great-great-grandmother. Um, 
I have nothing to back that up. But uh, I'm just going to... That's headcanon for me now. Um, Flo was very close with Stetson. Uh, she practically raised Stetson, as also was common with wealthy Southern families. Is right. They would just kind of dump their kids on the servants. And, you know, good thing rich people don't do that anymore, huh? Yeah, uh, unheard of. That's why all their kids turn out so well-adjusted. Um, right. But yeah, they were very close. And in the 1920s, when Stetson was just a boy... Flo was beaten and raped by local clan members for, and I quote, sassing white folks. Yeah, jeez. Um, the sassing in question, in this case, was questioning a bus driver who she thought had given her incorrect change. Whether she did or not, or whether she actually got correct change or not, I don't know, seems kind of immaterial at this point. That was, that was the so, nature of Jim Crow laws. It was basically illegal yeah. just to be black in public, doing anything at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, again, as I mentioned, Stetson was a kid when this happened. And Jack John, as you will be finding out in these next couple of years, one of the many really fascinating things about children and how their tiny little brains work is that while most of the time the fact that they don't have any real life experience or education to speak of is a detriment. In some cases, not having all of that external information presented by people who all have their own biases and opinions actually allows them to be a lot smarter than adults in those yeah. situations. Yeah, they haven't learned all the bullshit yet. <laughs> yeah. And this is one of those cases because, you know, Stetson growing up in a family like this in a place like this had had this not happened, basically, you know, right where he could see it out in the open. He likely would have grown up to be kind of a racist piece of shit. But as many children do, Stetson saw it, ob observed it for what it was and went, oh, OK, so these are the bad guys. Yeah. OK, that's easy enough. Yeah, you just did a horrible thing. You guys are the bad guys. Yeah, fuck yeah. you. Yeah, I'm on I'm on the other side. A lot of people who uh just got introduced to those ideas when they were older uh did not make it quite as cut and dried. Um his direct quote about this incident was at a tender age I realized they were lying to me about a lot more than Santa Claus. And um because of this incident, developed a lifelong hatred of racism and, in particular, the KKK. This guy hated the Klan, which, if you're going to hate a group of people, you could do worse. Um, so he enrolled in the University of Florida in 1935, but left after two years without receiving a degree. Um, he subsequently enrolled in something that I had never heard of before, but encountered in this research, and it's really cool. It's called the Federal Writers Project, mm -hmm. which was a section of the um, WPA under uh, Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal program. If you are unfamiliar with what that is, basically the WPA was uh, an organization that the government formed to, during the Great Depression, in order to boost the economy, um, basically just create work for people. See, in the 30s, McCarthyism wasn't in full swing yet, but it was still a point where the U.S. would shit its pants if anything even looked like communism. 
So right. literally the simple solution for FDR and what I believe he wanted to do at first was just basically do like a stimulus, just give people money. Mm -hmm. But then he realized a lot of people are going to be very opposed to that because this is America and you can't ever give someone money unless they are working their brains out for you. So he created the WPA to come up with all of these projects that they were like public works projects, uh, building dams, the Tennessee Valley Authority, stuff like that. Um, doing lots of these public works pro projects. So he had basically, so he had something productive that he could pay these people for. Yeah. Making people one, making people work for it rather than just giving them the money, a rare issue where both Joe Biden and Donald Trump are to the left of FDR. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy it. And it doesn't happen I, very often. <laughs> yeah. And again, I think uh, FDR would rather have done that, but Probably you know, true, yeah. as silly, as stupid as it is that he had to do that, there were some very cool things and very uh, useful things right. that came from it. Yeah, part of the uh, part the of the aforementioned TVA. Yeah, the power grid basically in the South was you know came about because of this. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the more obscure things was this federal writers project, which was uh, because this didn't just extend to people who did like manual labor. Uh, he included some creatives in this too. Uh, it was a way to create work and income for writers when nobody, I mean, nobody's buying books. You're not selling books. Newspapers are laying off staff just like everybody else. If they weren't absolutely essential, most of them would have gone under. Basically, the Library of Congress hired all these people as archivists to record American regional folklore, folk songs, stories, oral histories, what have you in their original different regional dialects in order to document American diversity and its role in our history, which is something that has served us very well over the years, I might add. But yeah, it was just this really neat project where he had all of these writers collecting American folklore, basically, and making sure we had record of it. Um, he traveled through Florida collecting these uh, stories with uh, such giants of American literature as Zora Neale Hurston and Alan Lomax. If you don't know who either of those two people are, I strongly encourage you to look it up. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston especially. She has written some truly incredible stuff about uh, especially race relations as, as it relates to uh, the American South and being a woman. It's, you know... Just really some fascinating stuff. Um, in 1942, he published his first book, uh, Palmetto Country, as part of what was known as the American Folk uh, Folkways series. Um, these This was an idea uh, that was cooked up by a few different authors that collaborated to release these books. It was a series of 28 different books written by authors from different regions of the country uh, that collected that region's folklore and some editorial essays, uh, oral histories, things like that. Uh, Lomax himself said that he doubted a better book about Florida's folklore will ever be written than uh, Palmetto Country. Also in 1942, Kennedy began working for uh, the CIO, which is a Federation of Labor Unions for Industrial Workers. Um, he was heavily involved in their political action committee, wrote a lot of pieces uh, criticizing policies like the poll tax, which is exactly what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. It is where you charge people to vote. Um, another one was what were called white primaries. Now, I had forgotten about these. 
this is one of the more openly despicable pieces of vote tampering and disenfranchisement I've ever heard of. Basically, yeah, black people have the right to vote in the general election. But in the primary, only white people can vote. One of those, you didn't basically to avoid... We're going to be racist here. Yeah, basically to avoid getting any candidate that even might make things better for black people on the ballot in the first place. So it didn't matter how well they turned out to vote, they weren't going to get anything done for them anyway. Kennedy did uh, have a patriotic streak, however, and he wanted to enlist to fight in World War II. Um, however, he had a bad back, which made him unfit for service. So he decided to serve his country by actually thinking, making things better within the country, which I'd say is a pretty good way to do that. I would argue that is, in fact, a much more sincere form of patriotism than your garden variety, American flag waving, gun toting, American sniper loving type of patriotism. If you love your country, instead of pretending everything they do is good from Jump Street, maybe acknowledge what's bad and then try and make it better. Just a thought. Sounds preposterous. <laughs> In this economy? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and he decided to do this by combating racial injustice. It was time for Stetson Kennedy to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with his life's greatest enemy, the Ku Klux Klan. <clears throat> Can I just say something about the Ku Klux Klan real quick? I wish you would. Like, you know, quite obvious they're, they're despicable. But, like, do you all know how stupid you look? <laughs> Walking around with your stupid white sheets... And your big pointy head. You walking around with that horse shit on you, just pointing straight up in the air. You're wearing linens for God's sake. You look like okay, a bad so Halloween what, what, costume, what and you're talking about how you're better you than to to everybody else. Fuck you. You know how stupid you fucking look. You know what I'm gonna ask you to do is take that thought and just set it gently on the table. Okay. Oh. Because we will be revisiting that idea. <laughs> Oh, my favorite part of every episode, when somebody gets to say table, that thought. You're going to like this one. Yeah, this I, is a good one. I, I'm, um, I, yeah, I'm anticipating this one. Yeah. So, Stetson Kennedy teamed up with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which is basically their state CID. And they came up with a plan. A plan to kick the Klan in the can. See... A lot of the reason that the KKK was so hard to bring down in the first place was that nobody really knew how it worked. They relied very heavily on Mystique. It was a fraternal organization, secret meetings, secret handshakes, all this other stupid pageantry. But it gave them this air of Mystique because people knew they were violent and destructive and they hated certain groups of people, but that's really all they knew. They didn't know how they operated. They didn't know how to avoid... Um, getting hurt by the clan besides just acquiescing to whatever they asked for. Now, why would the Georgia Bureau of Investigation be so concerned about getting rid of the KKK, especially in the 30s, you might ask? Does it sound like something they'd care much about? Well, here's the thing. The clan didn't just hate black people. It was black people any ethnic minority, Jews and Catholics. Jews 
doing okay at this point in the U.S. at least. Catholics were doing, you know, Catholics were profitable and quote unquote upstanding members of the community. Like they were, they were what they are now. They were a religion that is seen as perfectly valid, but the clan was coming after them all the time too. They were hardcore Southern <laughs> Protestants and anyone who didn't think exactly like they did, they would terrorize them until they ran away. Yes, Alex. Can we take a, a brief aside? Just tell a, a, a real quick story. Um, about I really hope you're going to tell the story that I think you're going to tell. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Um, a story that our grandfather used to tell us um, about was it like our, was it like <laughs> yes, our great great was it like our great great grandfather some some ancestor of ours yeah, from way back yeah it in the was day. our our his dad's dad's dad okay yes so an ancestor of ours um, in the the area we lived um, the clan uh, the clan had started a chapter and the only people there that, that they had disdain for, um, cause like, you know, there, there were no black folks, there weren't any Jewish folks, but there were some Catholics. Um, and so that's who they mainly fucked with. And our ancestor was friends with one of the Catholics in town and like stood up for him at one point to one of these chuckleheads. And so one day he found, um, somebody had thrown an apple through his window with, I believe a threatening note but our ancestor yeah. looked at it and realized, you know, there's only one guy around here who grows this particular type of apple. <laughs> and so he just waited for him to go by on his horse. And when he saw the guy, he pulled him off his horse and beat the shit out of him. And you didn't hear anything. <laughs> and you didn't hear anything about the clan after that in that area. So nice little no, feather in our cap. <laughs> also, like in that particular town, uh, the town that they would have grown up in. It is very heavily Catholic. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, if the clan had continued trying to make that work, they would have just gotten killed probably. So Catholic and yeah, German. I, so like big Catholics too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They would have whipped their asses. Um Yeah. So <laughs> with all of these other groups that weren't quite as, you know, they they had a higher social standing at that time than black people in America did. And having the Klan terrorizing the Catholics in your state and you not doing anything about it was making them look pretty bad because these are violent terrorists. That is what they are. They are terrorists. That's right. Yes. The and definition of terrorists. Yeah. They needed to get rid of these guys or at least kneecap them in some way, shape, or form. So what uh, Stetson Kennedy proposed and the Bureau agreed to was I'm going to go in there. I'm going to infiltrate the Klan and I'm going to find out how this really works. What the, you know, if I can get concrete, hard evidence that have put people in jail, great. If not, I just want to learn whatever I can that's going to let us understand these guys more and that will get us closer to being able to take them down. And this was a solid idea. They didn't know um, the affiliation structure in the clan still is very loose. Nobody was quite sure who was planning shit. They didn't know how the info was disseminated, where they held their meetings. All these kinds of things were uh, the type of stuff that Kennedy was looking for here. Um, it's, it's kind of odd now that the clan is so ubiquitous in our culture um, that people really had no idea. Like, the version of the KKK we see in movies, like the O Brother Where Art Thou clan, and, you know, the pointy hoods and all the shit that Alex was talking about, people didn't know any of that. 
until this happened. Until Stetson Kennedy and uh, the Georgia Bureau infiltrated the Klan and got some of the details. So he joined under a pseudonym, and he also somehow acquired a high-ranking informant. Now, typically how that happens is that means the Georgia State Bureau had something on this guy that they could have used to put him in jail for a long time and said, your options are you go to prison or you tell us what you and all your little clan buddies are doing all the time. Either way, in 1946, Kennedy provided the information he acquired through this project to a somewhat unusual source. The hit radio program Superman. What? Hmm. Yeah, that sounds really dumb, doesn't it? <laughs> well, but what? What? Not, yeah, what, not as dumb as you think. What? Yeah, what era was this? What decade are we talking about? 1946 is the year this happened. So, you know, obviously culture was a lot different back then. I'm assuming the idea is that this was something that tons and tons of people listened to. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Superman was huge. Um, And this is why it was the writers were given this information. See, people, especially at that time, were still a little mistrustful of the government. And also, you know, conservatives had a, a stronghold in the South to where if he just went to the press with this, they could kind of sweep it away. Yeah. But instead, what he did was he collaborated with the writers of the show on a series of 16 episodes in which Superman takes on the Ku Klux Klan <laughs> and included like the actual included the actual details of Klan rituals right down to their actual secret code words. That and is- they were not shy about the fact that, hey, this is really how they do it. This is the real <laughs> stuff. This is what they actually do. That is really clever. I mean, not only that tons of people are going to listen to it, but also, like, when you think about symbols of unambiguously good heroes, like, Superman is right there at the top. So, yeah. you know, the message yeah. really got across there, I'm sure. Uh-huh. So the idea of doing this was to, number one, spread the information as far as possible and break that mystique we were talking about earlier for the average person. In addition to providing the information to law enforcement, but that was objective number one, but also to disseminate this to the public. That way, it was a lot harder for the Klan to intimidate people or bully them into joining. Um, Secondly, and Alex, we're going to pick that thought you had up earlier off the table and revisit that now. It was a really great way to expose just how fucking lame all of this is. Yeah. It's like you hear secret societies and like there's there can be kind of a mystique about it when it's, you know, unknown or or you only know little bits and pieces about it. Yeah, it's important to show that these guys are a bunch of fucking geeks. Yeah, they're they're dorks. They're dressing up and yeah, the, the dressing up in the white sheets, the pageantry, the ridiculous names for the offices. You're not a fucking dragon or a wizard. Um, imagine You're an inbred toothless hick. Imagine is what you are. Like you are when, none of those things. Like when we play D and D at a, a twitch.tv slash here's an adventure, if we like Great. took it all completely dead serious, no fun at all, and also this is like important. Can you imagine? Yeah. It would suck. Everyone would hate it. That's why we don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Um 
yeah, this all served to show that these people really were just a bunch of hateful nerds desperately trying to cling to their sense of superiority uh, that they had just through their skin color. And the fact is, it's hard to strike fear into the hearts of your neighborhood when they know you're a huge dork. Um, that's just not an easy thing to do. Because I imagine, like, there's going to be, like, five or six clan members out on my front yard burning a cross, like, being all threatening. I'm just going to come out there and be like, what, you going to put on your little sheet and dance around some more? Fuck you going to do? Yeah. Go when tell your wizard you haven't put a hex on me, you fucking nerd. When the big bully gets punked out for the first time, no one's afraid of them anymore. Like, yeah, no, I saw no. your ass beat by Timmy. I'm not afraid of you. So in 1947, after he'd been doing this about a year, um, he'd come up with enough uh, evidence to put several high-ranking members of not the Klan itself, but an affiliated hate group called the Columbians uh, in prison. He put their top two guys in jail and helped the Bureau create files and dossiers on an untold number of Klan members and provided them with a blueprint of how their meetings work. Basically... He increased what they had on the clan knowledge wise about 10,000%. Um, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> in later years, some contemporary historians have called some of the claims about this into question. Most notably, uh, author and historian Ben Green. So Green worked with Kennedy just briefly and also examined his research, and he says that much of what Kennedy claimed he had done and what he had claimed to have discovered while undercover was actually freely given through interviews with Klan members who knew it was an interview, and that also some of the racist rhetoric that he uh, cited the Klan as, oh, you know, I've heard this at meetings, this is their credo, this is what they believe, uh, he they he said he actually acquired that by subscribing to uh, the Klan's like newsletters, which was actually a thing they had back then. You could subscribe to the Klan and have them send you printed racism on paper. <laughs> Again, nerds. Yeah. What what good is that? What does that do? You're already in the fucking clan. Why are you oh. trying to make yourself more racist? Oh, I'm going to put out some pamphlets. Then people will really listen to me. I love the idea that, like, in the back... I'm just like Thomas Paine. <laughs> in the back of these, like, clan pamphlets, it's like, they're, like, running things. And don't remember, we're doing a potluck on Wednesday. Like, don't forget to bring They probably... Uh, do they have things you... I wonder if they had things you could clip out and get, like, a free pair of x-ray specs that don't work <laughs> or something like that. Be sure to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> you make that joke, yes. <laughs> but this is like, be sure to hate minorities. <laughs> Same message from last we week. We covered we that. We already knew that. <laughs> that was literally the entire first day. And the second. And everyone since then. Um, yeah. So, also he claimed that he had collaborated by someone known only by the pseudonym John Brown, who did most of the actual dangerous undercover work. Um, furthermore, Kennedy uh, said in his writings he claimed to have had uh, a fairly close working relationship with state prosecutor Dan Duke, um, and according to Green, Kennedy highly embellished this. He said that Kennedy talked to Duke and 
said that, yeah, he, he blew that way out of proportion. Um, however, Peggy Bulger, who is a historian from the Library of Congress, who has worked uh, very closely with Stetson Kennedy over the years, said she also talked to Duke, and his direct quote was, yeah, Kennedy do, didn't do it all, but he did plenty. Um, also worth noting was that in 1946, he received a letter from Georgia's then-governor, Ellis Arnold, that uh, he had permission to quote him as saying that his evidence had facilitated Georgia's prosecution of the Klan. And that's that's like a letter that exists that was on official letterhead. That's not a fake thing. That is something we know to be true. So based on this criticism, one might conclude that maybe Green had some kind of an axe to grind here. Well, turns out, um, yeah, maybe he did, because... The reason he had access to Kennedy's research to begin with was because they were supposed to collaborate on a book that Green was writing about the Moors, who were a civil rights activist couple from Florida who were murdered in the 50s when their house was blown up. Jesus. And Kennedy, Kennedy said in an interview years later that the reason he split from the project was because Green wanted to not only whitewash, but actually praise the uh, federal agents who investigated the incident um, because everyone knew that the local cops were part of the Klan, but the they had the, um, the feds come in and investigate it, and Green wanted to paint them in a very complimentary light, whereas Kennedy suspected that probably all levels of law enforcement were somewhat complicit in this. And he's like, no my integrity will not allow me to put out a book where we say that the FBI were spotless here because I don't think they were. But either way, his supporters mostly argue that even if all of Green's claims are true about Kennedy's time in the Klan, he still did the job he went there to do. His goal was to collect information about the Klan and use it to help bring them down, and he did. Therefore, his work is vindicated regardless. After this, he continued writing for various newspapers and magazines, um, talking a lot about Jim Crow in the South and the continued presence of the Klan and similar hate groups. Um, in 1952, he decided, I'm going to try and do something from the top instead of being down here raking the muck. I'm going to run for governor. He ran for governor of Florida in 1952, um, and his good friend, Woody Guthrie, wrote him his own campaign song. Called that, Stetson Kennedy. That's baller. Yeah. And by the way, if you'd like to listen to that song, I don't know if Guthrie's version of it still exists, but uh, Billy Bragg and Wilco teamed up to record it for oh. a Guthrie tribute album. You can definitely find that version. It's okay. very good. Um, I've not heard it however, because I'm, I'm not in my 40s, so I don't listen to Wilco, but I, I'll look it up. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, Billy Bragg was the one that I found interesting oh, sure. there, but uh, that's that's a little dated as well. But you got to remember where he was and when this was his views and also the fact that he was hanging out with people like Woody <laughs> Guthrie. Yeah, did not make him very popular in Florida. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, he referred to himself as the most hated man in Florida uh, during his campaign for governor. And. There is some evidence to bear this out as right-wing groups uh, firebombed his house. Jesus. They like doing yeah. that kind of thing, yeah. 
They yeah, they really like fire. I don't know what it is with these. Uh, what is it with nerds and fire? I don't know. These guys but, just suck in a bunch of ways that are really hard to put your finger on. In addition to all of the obvious ones. Um. And eventually, upon realizing that yeah, he's not going to be governor, he's not going to be able to get into the Florida infrastructure and really change things. He eventually just said, all right, fuck this place and left the country entirely. He's like, no, I'm done with you assholes burning my house down and shit. All I ever did was try and make things better. Fuck you guys. I'm going to Europe. And he did. <laughs> he moved. He moved to France and began writing books about his time with the Klan and American hate groups, which he could not get published in America. He didn't even try. He knew that no big publisher was going to touch something like that in 1952 in America. But in France, things were a little bit different. And also, as we mentioned, he's got some friends in high places through his work with activism over the years, including the king of existentialist literature as we know it, Jean-Paul Sartre. Hmm. And Sartre said, I'll publish him. Give me what you got. I'll put them out there myself. I'll get my stamp. I can get a publisher lined up. I can get these on shelves, and that's exactly what he did. I used to have um, a, the a, books. I used I used to have a mufo on Twitter who went by Jean Paul Fart. Not sure what happened to him. I miss him. Well, if you've read any, you know what? That is a way too esoteric joke. I was about to make. <laughs> Never mind. I'm not even going to do it. Fine. I don't even know if it. Yeah, I don't even know if it works. It's been a while since I read that book. Anyway, um. He uh, left France eventually, living in Budapest for a while. And in 1956, he just happened to be there during the Hungarian Revolution. Um, so he said, yeah, I'm going to leave here. However, he was detained in Paris for over a year as the U.S. government seized his passport because this was the McCarthy era. And this is exactly the kind of guy who, even though there's not really much economic philosophy in his work at all, Joe McCarthy knew had to be a communist. Like, this guy is way too nice and tolerant of people Say, and this, this... Doesn't, li doesn't like totalitarian fascist regimes. Yeah, this, this guy <laughs> Only doesn't... a dirty commie. This guy doesn't suck at all. I find that incredibly suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> um eventually he did make it back to florida though uh he was detained in paris for over a year as a result of oh, this. if you are going to be i mean if you're going to be detained not the worst city in the world you could be stuck in uh you know could be like the one he came from but uh eventually he got back to florida and resumed his study of and collecting of folklore and he uh, was active and revered in the field for the rest of his life. He is one of the most accomplished folklorists in American history. And basically, as far as Florida, uh, Florida folk stories and music goes, this is the guy. This is their, you know, their Mount Rushmore has one guy on it, and it's him. Which I guess would just be the Lincoln Memorial, but never mind. Joke works better if I don't point that out. We'll get it in post. It's just him doing four different phases. Yeah, I'll, I'll totally, I'll totally <laughs> cut that out. Don't worry. Yeah, and not just add an extra five minutes of you guys clowning on how <laughs> dumb it was. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, he he returned to Florida and was very active in his field for life. 
he lived for a while. He passed away in 2011 at the age of 94. He was very nearly 95. And his funeral, I normally don't go into the funerals of these guys, but this one's worth going into because this is awesome. Um, First of all, he's like, I don't want a funeral. I want a party. It's going to be a party. Make it a party. Uh, which commenced with an hour of performances of folk music by his friends that were active in the uh, community, culminating in all of the attendees joining together and singing his friend Woody Guthrie's classic, This Land is Your Land, in unison, in one voice, as it was meant to be. That was the life and times and activism and all kinds of other stuff. Just That was one of the most stuff-packed stories we've ever done. But that's, that's Stetson Kennedy. All that's left now is my big question to the two of you. So, if you wanted to infiltrate an organization, any organization you want, and discover their secrets, who are you infiltrating? And for bonus hag points, tell me what you think you might find. So I'm going to infiltrate the uh, Baseball Riders of America. Oh, yeah. Find the secrets behind these, these fucking weird... Hall of Fame ballots people cast. Um, and, you know, it's hard to even know where to begin about what kind of secrets could be there. Um, because there's so much ridiculous shit just sitting right out in the open. <laughs> I assume yeah. I assume Babe Ruth did something. Probably. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to infiltrate the Girl Scouts of America, and uh, what I hope to find is uh, whatever narcotics they're putting into their cookie supply to make them so addicting. Um, so you, you think that the secrets you're going to uncover is that they have cease, uh, secretly been giving us all uh, Thin Mints with cocaine in them? I exactly <laughs> believe that, yes. That was my exact example. Cue yeah. up, cue yeah, up the... That's... Cue up the meme where uh, it's it's the two astronauts and one of them's Jack John saying, uh, "Wait, it was just sugar the whole time," and the other one is and the other one's a Girl Scouts of America with a gun to the back of his head. Always has been. Yeah. <laughs> Always has been. Yep. Oh, good answers for both of you guys. It was tough for me to to come up with one. Um, my first thought was actually going to be uh, infiltrating the. Uh, people who moderate Twitter uh, hoping to figure out how they let some of the disgust, disgusting, hateful shit people post on their stand and then other people get banned for telling those people to go fuck themselves. I think that's a little suspect. That was that was one idea I had. Also, um, Alex, kind of in line with yours, I want to infiltrate the St. Louis Cardinals front office <laughs> and find out what the fuck they think they're doing most of the time. Because they make some decisions that are just absolute head scratchers, and I want to know the logic behind it. Maybe I'll I'll go from there, thinking that okay, maybe John Mosellock and Bill Dewitt are not idiots. Now, I'm still waiting for that to happen. Now, I'm not saying the merits of what you're saying are entirely wrong, but I will point out you do realize you're you're saying this in the presence of a Marlins fan, correct? Yeah, I was yeah. You know, I think by Miami, and why you're like doing a big move to take Cleveland on the way back? Figure out what the fuck they're yeah. doing. Yeah, I mean, look, I it would be just as, it would be probably more fruitful for me to infiltrate the Marlins front office, but you have to consider that I don't care about the Marlins. Yeah, the Marlins front office doesn't either. 
They could be doing fucking whatever in there. I don't care. It's I don't 100%. care if they spend all day playing Naked Twister. It's 100% below. Like, it's... There, yeah, it is no Miami. Analytics. There's no advanced... Yeah, it's, it's also Girl Scout headquarters, oddly enough. <laughs> There's, they're crushing up Thin Mints and doing lines of Thin Mints. God, if I don't get a tag along, the shakes are going to start. <laughs> all right, well, another fun topic, so thank you for that. And that means for our third and final topic this week, we turn to me. My guy is Kermit Washington. Great name to start with. Um, so we have had a bunch of baseball players on here before, but I think this is our first basketball player. Am I wrong about that? I believe it is. Yeah. And Glenn we have, have we, this, I don't know if we've done, have we done an NFL player yet? I don't think so either. We really haven't done much sports yeah, th- outside of like Olympians and baseball. Yeah. If All we right. had a football player, they did it passively as like a collegiate sport, but never was a full-time NFL player, I don't think. Yeah, Glenn Burke, who well, yeah, in high school a little bit. Well, yeah, in our wrestling topics, I'm sure we've yeah. talked about yeah. plenty of football players. Yeah. Oh, uh, we did We did talk about Will Hill. Never mind. That's right. We talked about Will Hill. Um, but in any event, this is our first uh, pro basketball player, Kermit Washington. Um, a really complicated story. There's a lot of nuances, as we're going to see. Um, so you might as well turn it off now. Early in his life, in his career, he could best be seen as a tale of personal triumph. Um, but that wouldn't last, and um, everything would change on one fateful night in 1977. But we'll get to that. Kermit was born in 1951. He had a tumultuous family life growing up in Washington, D.C. Uh, his parents fought a lot. They got divorced when Kermit was three. His mom struggled with bipolar disorder and thereby struggled with caring for uh, the kids for long periods of time. And as a result, uh, they all got passed around from family member to family member. Probably, you know, in part as a re- um, in part due to this, Kermit was very shy and withdrawn, and he had poor self-esteem. Uh, he also hated school. Um, he wasn't even that interested in sports. Um, when he first got into high school, he only tried out for football. Um, be- that was only because one of his friends did, and he wanted to walk home with him after practice because he didn't like walking home alone. <laughs> I would not lead with that on your first day at football practice. (laughs) So late in high school, he finally encountered a teacher who took an interest in him. And just meeting someone who thought something of him meant so much to Kermit that he became motivated and he worked harder in school and wound up on the honor roll. Um, He also joined the basketball team and was actually not very good at that either. He had the height. He was six foot four, but only 150 pounds and didn't play physical ball. And the fact that he didn't play physical yeah. ball is maybe a little tidbit to put away in, in the old noggin there. Yeah. Well, I... and see, here's here's the thing. I I call basketball games partially for a living. So there are a lot of kids like this, especially in high school. The kids that are really tall and haven't grown into their bodies yet and are just all arms and legs and are just a baby giraffe out there. Yeah. A lot of those kids can wind up going on to be very good players once they fill out and get a little coordination. I I was that kid. I was the tall kid who was still 125 pounds. Uh, I stopped playing both football and basketball shortly after. So Kermit's... Yeah, football's a tough one with that build. I was a tight end. My coach was an asshole. <laughs> so Kermit's senior year, he came off the bench and he only averaged four points per game. Not the sort of player who gained any attention from colleges, and especially not the type of player you would think could wind up in the NBA one day. 
But Kermit kept training on his own and trying to get better. Around the time that he graduated high school, Kermit showed up to a local playground game in D.C. that featured some of the top players in the area. Kermit talked his way into the game despite being quite obviously outmatched. Um, the trade-off was that all these actual good players just pushed him around and treated him like crap all day. Um, Kermit expectedly didn't play well, but he tried his ass off and he brushed aside all the abuse that the other players threw his way. That day, though, through all this, Kermit caught a rare lucky break. In the audience was a guy named Tom Young. Tom was a former assistant coach at Maryland who had just been hired as the head basketball coach of local American University. Tom was there scouting local talent to add to the program, and he watched this guy Kermit Washington hussing his ass off and ignoring all the shit that other people were giving him. Tom really saw nothing in his game, but he just liked Kermit for the way that he handled himself, and he decided, like, you know what, this is a kid I can work with, we're a small school, I can take a chance here, and he offered Kermit a scholarship to come play at American. Kermit, of course, accepted, not like he yeah. had a lot of options. Really small schools without a lot of basketball program, even in college, if you're six foot four, you can probably like at least walk onto the team and get a spot on the bench if you are not god awful. Uh, which school did Taco Fall go to? Uh, I think UCF. Uh, yeah. Yeah, UCF, yeah. Interesting that you mentioned the height thing, though, Cody, because Kermit catches another break that summer in the form of a late growth spurt, shooting up from 6'4 to 6'8. Shit, yeah. This was a nice break yeah. for him, uh -huh. but he did realize uh, at this point he was built like an absolute beanpole, and he began weight training, getting himself up over 200 pounds. He hadn't figured that out yet. He's been trying to raise his game and just getting knocked around like a scarecrow this whole time. And he didn't figure out I might need to put some muscle on. He's just Captain America before the serum. And he's like, oh, fuck, what if I had muscle now? More like fucking Stretch Armstrong. Also that. So college really changed Kermit. He came out of his shell quite a bit. Um, a big part of that was that he met a young lady named Pat. Pat had come to watch a freshman scrimmage game where Kermit kind of misunderstood what was going on and at one point scored four consecutive points for the opposing team. Oh, no. <laughs> Pat thought, thought this was so adorable that after the game, she came up and talked to him. Um, they hit it off, and after college, they would eventually get married. Aww. How do you approach someone in that context? <laughs> like, hey, I saw you out there, and you're really stupid. Uh, can I have your number? You're a fuck-up <laughs> in an endearing way. <laughs> what I love is that after the first basket in Dero, like your first made one, you try it again, and I love that perseverance yep. in you. Just stop shooting. <laughs> Pass the ball if you're not sure. Yeah, at that point, the person who inbounded the ball, it's their fault and not his. So Kermit's new attitude and hard work in his spare time eventually paid dividends on the court. Remember that as a senior in high school, he came off the bench, scored four points per game. As a sophomore in his first year of varsity uh, low-level D1 basketball, Kermit averaged 18.6 points per game and 20.5 rebounds per game. Price. Okay, so he added some vertical there, too. He's getting up there. He's not just tall. After that season, he started working with a new trainer who imparted a, a pretty critical message on him. He told Kermit that, that he had enough skill and size that the pros are, are probably going to start taking notice, but he played too soft. He'd never get drafted unless he started getting more physical. The message sunk in. Kermit retooled his game, and in his junior year, he averaged 21 points per game, shot 54.4%, 
averaged 19.8 rebounds per game, all with a style of play that was going to be more attractive to pro teams. Um, And accordingly, and I'll note this was pre-merger era, Kermit was drafted by the New York Nets of the ABA after his junior year. Um, However, he declined to sign simply because he felt loyalty to Tom Young and American University for believing in him. So to repay him, Kermit came back to play his senior year. In the background, Kermit was dealing with an old problem again, his grades. He really struggled at first until Pat stepped in to work with him. According to Pat, Kermit didn't even know what a paragraph was. Oh, <laughs> Just... Yeah, you, you got to remember that some of these kids come from school systems that are just absolute garbage. Yeah. Well, and I'll and add that... necessarily the school's fault a lot of them are severely underfunded well i'll add that the teacher who took an interest in him and, and really turned around in high school was a biology teacher so i don't i don't yeah. know if that really carried over into english um but through through he tell you the, uh what the powerhouse of the cell is but damn it he can't write a paper about it so through kermit and pat's hard work academically um kermit didn't merely keep his grades afloat he was actually named an academic all-american his junior year um, senior year, Kermit was great once again, and uh, as is his last big hurrah, he faced a pretty fun challenge. American University, they just missed the NCAA tournament and wound up in the NIT. Kermit's career stats coming into his final game were such that he was looking at a rather monumental accomplishment. He could be only the seventh player in NCAA history to finish his career average with 20 points and 20 rebounds per game. But to do so, he had to score 39 points that night. The pressure was high. Not out of the realm of possibility. No, certainly but possible for yeah. a great player. And I'm sure his teammates were probably just going to feed him the ball to help out. But the other team was going to know that as well. So the pressure was high. The crowd was raucous. And Kermit was so nervous he didn't sleep the night before. Despite all that, that night in his final game, Kermit scored 40 points. Making oh, basketball yeah. history in the process. Also notable, his senior year, he was again named Academic All-American. He finished with a 3.37 GPA and actually student taught some sociology classes. Oh, shit. So he was okay. So not not to step on anything you're going to do, but just to the listeners, keep in mind that the hallmark of this guy's story is quick turnarounds. Yeah. (laughs) And we will get there. Don't believe me. So uh, he entered the NBA draft and was taken fifth overall by the iconic L.A. Lakers. Um, And that summer he married Pat. So he was pretty much on top of the world at this point. Unfortunately for Kermit, his pattern of hitting a wall when reaching a new level continued. Part of the problem was that he was changing both scheme and position. He'd been a center in a zone defense at American U. The Lakers switched him to a power forward and a man defense. So he struggled with the transition. Yeah, you didn't. You don't see hardly any. These days, some teams are starting to phase it in a little bit again, but you see almost no zone defense in the NBA. Yeah, It he, is straight up man-to-man. He struggled with the transition and felt intimidated playing around legends such as Jerry West, who is in the late stages of his career. And Jerry West, you may recognize for being the silhouette on the NBA logo. Mm-hmm. So Kermit played sparingly in his first few seasons and impressed nobody, looking like a major draft bust. But... Although, as I said, unfortunately, uh, his pattern of hitting a wall when reaching a new level continued. Fortunately, his pattern of working his way out of the jam also continued. Uh, Kermit contacted a guy named Pete Newell, a retired coach who had actually been the Lakers GM who had drafted him, um, but he had had since been demoted. 
Newell felt he had something to prove after his demotion, and so when Kermit asked him for his help training him, Newell accepted. Pete worked Kermit's ass off, and he taught him both pro-level fundamentals and toughness. Around the same time, in 1975, the Lakers traded for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. This was a helpful break for Kermit. Hey, I know you. Yeah. I was wondering how long it was going to take for the airplane reference. Um, it was, this was a helpful break for Kermit, um, since Abdul-Jabbar, unlike a lot of great players of that era, he wasn't all that physical. And he wasn't about to retool his game because he's fucking Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He doesn't need to. Yeah, because he didn't have to. Because yeah. he could make any shot within the three-point within the three point line, which I don't even know if they had the three-point line yet, but uh, without really even trying. The guy was just a bucket machine. So, thereby, Kermit's new tough customer style was an excellent compliment to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That year, Kermit's performance improved, but he did suffer a terrible knee injury that threatened his career. Newell wasn't going to let him give up that easily, though, and he trained Kermit through the injury and to a career-best season in 76-77. So, let's step back for a second. To this point, Kermit's story sounds like one of perseverance and a highly impressive one at that. I mean, hearing everything that I just said, you'd think he'd be looked back on as a role model, an inspiration perhaps. But that's not what his legacy is. So let's get into why. Pro basketball was a very, let's say, chippy game back in the 70s. And in 1977, the Lakers had gotten off to a particularly chippy start. On opening night against the Bucks, Kent Benson elbowed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar hard in the gut. Uh, Abdul-Jabbar responded by punching Benson so hard it broke both Benson's jaw and his own hand. <laughs> yeah, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar may not have been a very physical player, but he was also huge. Well, yeah. and although, He was a just massive man. And although he was his style wasn't physical, he was tough. I mean, he didn't take shit yeah. off of people. Um, a few games later, Kermit got into a brawl with several players of the Buffalo Braves. See... Kermit had been anointed the role of an enforcer. In fact, Sports <laughs> Illustrated in their season preview that year, they had featured Kermit in a, a story about enforcers. This expectation and what had happened on opening night may have given him a bit of a complex. So then came December 9th, 1977, a night that would go down in NBA history. The Lakers were playing the Houston Rockets. During the game, Kermit had a particularly physical contention for a rebound with seven-foot Rockets center Kevin Cunnert. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar thought Cunnert was a little too chippy with this and stepped up to confront him. Kermit grabbed a hold of Cunnert's shorts to keep him from getting down court on offense and away from Abdul-Jabbar. Cunnert elbowed Kermit in the arm and turned around to face him. Now, the exact sequence that followed is debated, but in some order, Kermit and Cunnert swung at each other and the fight was on. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar grabs Kevin Cunnert. Kermit hits him with a shot that knocks him to a knee. Then, out of the corner of his eye, Kermit sees Rockets guard Rudy Tomjanovich come running into the fray. Tomjanovich had a stellar reputation in the league. Most knew of him as a, a, something of a peacemaker, a guy who would frequently run in to break up fights. Unfortunately, when I say uh, most knew him, that did not include Kermit Washington, who didn't know who he was. Kermit, the enforcer, simply sees an opponent running in to involve himself in a fight. And what followed is among the most infamous moments in NBA history. Kermit 
punches the shit out of Rudy Tomjanovic. It lands square in his face with a sickening noise that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar likened to the sound of dropping a watermelon onto a sidewalk. And to watch this footage, something else you have to remember is Tomjanovic is coming in and he's... He's not expecting to get hit. Yeah. He has no idea this is coming. He's trying to run past Kermit. Kermit turns around and sucker punches the hell out of him while he's at full momentum going the other way. Right. So he's providing a lot of that momentum, too. I mean, it is just an absolute perfect storm of getting knocked the fuck out. He's the medic in the war zone. He's not expecting to take a hit. Like, There's an agreed upon rule. You don't shoot the medic. Reporters up in the press box, they heard the sound clearly, and many ran down to the court, concerned that Rudy may have just been killed. Rudy was left unconscious on the court, and a pool of blood quickly formed around him. The fans, usually entertained by a good fight, they stood in stunned, eerie silence. Rudy was somehow able to regain consciousness and walk off the court with help. He was hit so hard that he says his first thought was that the scoreboard must have fallen on him. Kermit's punch had fractured Rudy's face a third of an inch away from his skull, in addition to breaking his nose, breaking his jaw, and severely concussing him. His face was just completely shattered. And the most notorious of the gruesome details, blood and spinal fluid leaked into Rudy's brain capsule, and Rudy says that as he walked off the court, he could taste his own spinal fluid in his mouth. This was from one punch. Okay, question... How did he know what spinal fluid tasted like? Well, I'm sure he tasted something extremely nasty and asked a doctor later, and they're like, well, that was your own spinal fluid. And he's like, oh, cool. Uh, so, okay, fair enough. So Kermit... Yeah, that's a lot cooler to hear after the fact. <laughs> so Kermit knew that he was up shit creek here. And, I mean, he, it was obvious to him immediately that he'd fucked up. And to make matters worse, the only replay available only showed the punch and not the lead-up, making it look even more unnecessary than it already was. Oh, no. The the media was all over this. Exposés followed in the New York Times and on CBS News with Walter Cronkite. The focus was not just on Kermit, but whether this was an example of how the fight culture of the NBA had gone out of control. And although I've not read or watched these pieces, I'm sure it didn't help that the NBA was a highly integrated league And this was a black man laying out a white man. Unsurprisingly, Kermit faced severe consequences. That came in the form of a 60-day suspension, um, the longest in league history at the time for an in-game incident, plus a $10,000 fine. Now, it's worth mentioning, when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had clocked Kurt Benson earlier that year, he faced zero consequences. Which is to say that although Kermit genuinely did a bad thing here, he was perhaps singled out by a league trying to save face with the media. Kermit's suspension equaled 26 games, a league record that held until 1997 when Latrell Sprewell was suspended 68 games for coaching, uh, choking his own coach during practice. <laughs> and it was also a league record for in-game incidents that held until 2004, and you, I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, the even more infamous Malice of the Palace, after which Ron Artest yeah. and Steven Jackson both broke that record. Yes. Uh, this was considered probably the most infamous moment in the history of the NBA until the malice at the palace. Right. Um, I'm going to have to go watch that documentary yes. again. God, that it's was good. Such a good one. I watched it with Laura and we both were just like, this is incredible. 
The NBA, they changed several rules in response, namely adding a third referee to game crews and increasing punishments for fighting. The Lakers, they threw Kermit under the bus completely as well, offering no support even as Kermit's mailbox flooded with racist hate mail. Kermit's fellow players across the league did offer solidarity for the most part. A lot of people made statements saying, look, Kermit's a great guy off the court. This isn't indicative of his character. He, j- he just screwed up here. Unfo- yeah, I, I mean, it's really, honestly, if you consider the actual context of the situation, he did not, he, he didn't mean to do what he did. He just didn't look before he leaped. He yeah. made a split second decision that he shouldn't yeah. have made. Well, and guys fought all the time. This was just the worst Finally, someone yeah, got and, hit so bad that it, it, it kind of forced right. forced the NBA's hand. And for for all for all he knew, that guy could have been coming up to sucker him in the back of the head. Yeah. But what you should have done then was turn around and be on your guard for that instead of immediately just flatlining this guy. Yeah. yeah. It's unfortunate that his attack was a critical hit. It yeah. Absolutely knocked him yeah. the fuck. Yeah. He rolled a nat twenty. Um. <laughs> Unfortunately, the damage was done in the public eye, and Kermit's family were treated like absolute pariahs. But one rather important man did still believe in Kermit, and that was legendary Boston Celtics GM Red Auerbach. Correctly, he saw that the Lakers wanted nothing more than to distance themselves from Kermit, and he traded for Kermit a mere two weeks after the punch. Um, and, And I can't believe I'm about to say this, but to the credit of Boston sports fans... Oh, no. They embraced Kermit for who he was and looked past the punch. Uh, Both Auerbach and Boston Globe columnist Bob Ryan, a quite familiar uh, name and face for people like me who used to watch a ton of Around the Horn, um, they both publicly vouched for Kermit as a decent man who had just made a big mistake. Um, Kermit re-signed with Boston in 1978. Interestingly, Boston also signed Kevin Cunnert that offseason. (laughs) <laughs> Kerman and Cunnert, they didn't really talk about the fight and rather they chose to just kind of coexist peacefully. In fact, I think I read that their wives became quite good friends. The pair would find themselves. I at- mean, that's, that's not the worst thing after something like that happens. Sometimes <laughs> you just got to be like, okay, that, that happened. Let's just move on. So the pair would find themselves in another weird situation later that year. So the Celtics at that time were owned by a film executive named Irv Levin. Irv loved the prestige of owning an NBA team, but wanted to get out of New England and closer to his business interests in California. And, you know, you're not about to move the Boston Celtics. Irv got in touch with KFC mogul John Y. Brown, the owner of the Buffalo Braves. Brown also loved the prestige of owning an NBA team, but was interested in owning a team that people actually gave a shit about. And so these two rich dickheads orchestrated a rather unique trade. Here's how the trade went. The trade was Tiny Archibald, Marvin Barnes, Billy Knight, two second-round draft picks, and the Boston Celtics franchise in exchange for Kermit Washington, Kevin Cunnert, Freeman Williams, Sidney Wicks, and the Buffalo Braves franchise. And I know that's confusing, so here's the short version. Ownership of the team swapped along with a bunch of players, including Kermit and Cunnert, who are both now Buffalo Braves. But not for long as just weeks after the NBA approved the Braves' relocation to San Diego, where they became the Clippers. That is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Something that's never been seen before or since, and I think the NBA kind of just doesn't talk about because they're not really proud of it, because it's so stupid. Um, I will say, 
in terms of in terms of teams moving around, the NBA has a much harder time with that than other te- other leagues seem to. Hmm. They get a lot of teams jumping cities and changing, you know, yeah. just all that stuff. I'll so add although this this came from Levin and Brown's interest, the actual mastermind behind this trade, NBA legal counsel and fu- counsel and future commissioner David Stern. Um, also, John Y. Brown would also be elected governor of Kentucky the next year. But I digress. It was that year with the Clippers that Kermit and Rudy Tomjanovich would play against each other for the first time since the punch. The team's respective coaches tried to orchestrate an on-court handshake between the two. Kermit agreed. Rudy did not. Instead, Rudy would make his point by scoring 26-11 and 11 that night. Jesus. <laughs> The next year, San Diego made a trade with the Portland Trailblazers for injured center Bill Walton. Uh, The teams couldn't agree on compensation, and they asked the league to step in. The league basically said, like, well, these two shitheads, uh, Kermit Washington and Kevin Cunner, they're used to getting traded uh, by now, so we may as well just trade them again. So Kermit was upset at the further instability, but this change of scenery actually helped him. The city of Portland was very welcoming to him. Kermit refocused on his game, and in 1980... Four years and three teams after the punch, Kermit made his first NBA All-Star game. Portland made him a captain the next year, but lingering injuries caught up to him. He retired mid-season in January 1982. Astoundingly, good old resilient Kermit Washington made a comeback five years later with the Golden State Warriors. He only lasted eight games before they cut him, but that's still a pretty tremendous feat. And uh, through that cameo, we get the fun bit of trivia that there was a mutual teammate of both Jerry West and Chris Mullen. After his, that is wild. Yeah, that is wild. After his career, Kermit has been involved in a bunch of things, from owning restaurants to coaching to assisting in humanitarian missions to war-torn regions of Africa. Although there is no one big public moment declaring it, Rudy Tomjanovich has acknowledged to the media he eventually spoke to Kermit and he did forgive him for the punch. Rudy, of course, would go on to lead the Houston Rockets to -to back-to-back NBA titles as head coach in 94-95, as well as coaching the USA men's national team to a gold medal at the 2000 Olympics and getting inducted into the Hall of Fame uh, last year, in 2021. The biggest source of controversy with respect to Kermit since his retirement is Kermit's assertion that he's been shunned out of jobs by the basketball community because of lingering resentment over the punch. People go back and forth over this. My view is that it may partially be true. See, he's been an assistant coach at Stanford and with the Portland Trailblazers, but he's never so much as sniffed a head coaching position anywhere. Similarly, he was named the assistant athletic director at American University, his alma mater, and he lobbied hard to eventually take over as the head AD. But that never came to be. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe it's all performance related, or maybe he's right, and people can still never see past the punch. So that's hard to say, but what I can definitely say, what I can definitely say is uncool, is that in 2016, Kermit was indicted for embezzling $5 million of funds meant for children in Africa. Oh, fuck. In 2017, yeah. <laughs> there's no sugarcoating that one. You can't be one. doing that. You, you just can't be doing that. In 2017, he pled guilty to three charges and was sentenced to six years in federal prison, which is where he still remains to this day with a parole eligibility date of a year from now in August 2023. And so that is the perhaps <laughs> fitting ending of the roller coaster tale that is the life of Kermit Washington. So, my big question for the two of you, what is your all-time favorite 
in-game shithead moment in sports. And I sent this to you earlier, and I'll, I'll clarify for the audience as well. This this is a pretty broad category. It can be, you know, taunting, fights, cheating, any kind of poor sportsmanship within a game in any sport. What's your favorite? Oh, man. So I, it was tough for me to pick one because I didn't really know how to judge favorite. So I just went with the one that I thought was the most insane that I had ever seen. I'm going to say two words, and if you know, you know. Tom Gamboa. Uh, Tom Gamboa was a first base coach for the Kansas City Royals. Oh, yeah. <laughs> who was uh, playing at Comiskey Park against the Chicago White Sox when two fans took issue with something that he did, leaped onto the field, and this one, two fans, they were father and son. One of the son was 15 years old, absolutely beat the living shit out of this guy until they were pulled away. Like, that that was the moment that I actually was cognizant of for my you know early sports fandom where I was like this is insane I never thought something like this would happen ever something is wrong with sports fans yeah I also remember that was a something a, is wrong with those sports fans for sure I also remember that was a frequent topic of jokes on the Bob and Tom show back in the day yeah they did a uh, I remember they had a real funny one that was I. It, I don't know if it was a beer commercial or what, but it was one of those real heartwarming father and son commercials. And they were talking about how much they enjoyed beating the shit out of the first base coach (laughs) together. I, I have two only because I thought Cody would absolutely take the first one, uh, which is known shithead Jose Bautista getting absolutely knocked in the fucking face by Odor after a bullshit Bush league slide in the second. Um, Standing up, getting in the face of Odor, shoving him, and then getting the glasses punched off of his fucking face for it. Yeah. Yeah, Rugnet Odor, by the way, is like 5'9". He's not a big dude. Right. Uh, But then, uh, as a secondary, uh, not necessarily shithead, but absolute disrespect, uh, Allen Iverson stepping over Tyron Lue after hitting a very, very beautiful shot and then just stepping over him like a child and just saying... You're a piece of shit and beneath me. Yeah, there, there's actually... Uh, I was going to mention two, but now I'm going to mention three. Um, one real brief, because you mentioned the the, the Rugnet Odor punch. That's yeah. probably the best punch in a fight in MLB history. Now, before that, my favorite was um, Robin Ventura charging the mound at like 40-something-year-old <laughs> Nolan Ryan. And Nolan Ryan just putting him in a headlock and just, and just punching yes. him repeatedly. That yeah. was a, a close classic. second for yeah. me. Yeah. I almost went with that. <laughs> I'll mention, um, what were the other ones I was going to Oh, one, I, I, I just have a soft spot for this because the video is so funny. And it, it's kind of a guy of sports incidents. Um, the famous George Brett pine tar moment, which if you don't know the backstory, yeah. um, the Royals were playing uh, at Yankee Stadium. It was the top of the ninth. George Brett hit what would have been... Um, uh, a home run to take the lead with two outs. Um, but then Yankees manager, Billy Martin, who keeps fucking popping up in these stories somehow, um, complained to the ump that, um, you can have pine tar in your bat, but it can only go so high up on the bat complained that it was too high up on George Brett's bat. And the, the umpire measured it compared to the home plate. Um, determined that yes, this is in fact too much pine tar. And you just see, it's one of the, the most perfect, 
pieces of camera work in sports history. You see the overhead shot looking into the Royals dugout. You see the umpire point at him and give the out signal. And George Brett just full sprint out of the dugout straight at this umpire. Had to be forcibly restrained. Otherwise, he was just going to beat this guy to a pulp. Most people don't know. It's like an, an unbelievable image of George Brett just going straight at this guy. Most people don't know how that ended, which is the Royals... Uh, protested it because that was like the end of the game. The Royals protested the game, sent it to the American League management, and they said like, "Yeah, that actually was the wrong call. He had too much pine tar, but they should have just said you can't use this bat anymore and not called him out." <laughs> so they restarted the game from that moment, um, oh and and the Royals won. So <laughs> that's a that one's a soft spot in in my heart. That's a good one. The, um. Or go ahead. Yeah, one. Well, yeah, the one that I, I wanted to mention, and my dad will probably be very happy I tell this story, was one I witnessed in person. When I was in eighth grade playing junior football, um, for those of you who don't know what a football jamboree is, like for football, for junior football or junior varsity in high school, it's you play like a bunch of little mini football games throughout the course of a day. And like, you know, they don't really matter. They don't go to an official record. Um, but I was playing one of these um, when I was in eighth grade. And we stopped by to watch because we had a break. There was like a like a fifth or sixth grade game going on. Um, and one team had the lead and had the ball down on like the, you know, inside the five. And all they had to do was run out the clock. But their coach called a timeout with two seconds left to run one more play. Oh my God. You can look at this one of two ways. One is that he was trying to run up the score. Two, he wanted to give his kids a chance to score another point. Yeah. So he calls timeout, two seconds left. They come out, they run a play. They fumble the ball. The opposing team picks it up, runs it all the way back for a touchdown and wins. Oh and one of the dads of one of the players, who is a guy who, Cody, you now work with, <laughs> um, <laughs> he he sees the opposing coach. Without giving too much away, no, this is a guy I work for. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he was this a dad. This is my direct supervisor at work. He was a dad of one of the players on the winning team, and he he sees the other coach leaving the field and just yells like, "Hey, coach, call timeout! Great idea, coach, call timeout!" <laughs> and my dad, that was like the the fun. My dad thought that was the funniest thing he'd ever seen in his life. So I did want to <laughs> want to give an honorable mention to that. So I had a couple more from the NFL because we didn't really. We didn't mention a whole lot of just egocentrism here. I will tell you one of my favorite moments in NFL history because Terrell Owens was so fucking oh. annoying. Mm. When he went to the 50-yard line and did the dance on the star at the <laughs> Cowboys Stadium and then Roy Williams just absolutely flattened him. Yeah. Yes. Well after the play was over. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. Give me more. Yeah. I will also say just for pure just insanity uh pedro martinez throwing down don zimmer in the middle oh of the yeah oh god <laughs> that is one of the like if you go back and watch that with the announcers they're like oh god <laughs> don might be dead like yeah. that man is and grant granted i will say in pedro's defense yeah. don zimmer was coming at him square enough right. yeah like, like Pedro, I don't care if you're in. I don't care if you're 95. If you act like you're gonna throw a punch at me, I'm gonna hit you. Like it's, that's just what's gonna happen. Pedro did like a hip toss to him. Yeah, he still hip tossed. He grabbed him by the head. Well, 
he grabbed him yeah. like a melon. Like he grabbed yeah. his head like he's picking up a cantaloupe and just <laughs> threw yeah. it to the side. But as oh, gently um, as possible. Oh, hello, potato. Uh, also, one one classic I'm surprised we haven't mentioned yet was Randy Moss pretending to uh, to moon the yeah, crowd and what a big clusterfuck <laughs> that was. That was like a um, that's like S tier bad sportsmanship moment right there. <laughs> that's a classic. I will say if you Randy Moss had some good ones, but if you want to go back and watch all of them that you can find, Chad Johnson yes. during his OG run with the Bengals had some <clears throat> shit that was ridiculously elaborate yeah. yeah like he planned he this fun, stuff yeah. out didn't he have like the a uh the fake proposal his... to the cheerleader yeah. was cool the uh grabbing the pom-poms was yeah he, he had a lot of a lot of fun stuff um i'll mention one more and, and then we'll end it because we we could go on all night about this but yeah. real real briefly and we will if we're not careful <laughs> nick young swaggy p pimping a three-pointer yes. that that he missed badly an all-timer <laughs> Yes. God bless Swaggy Pete. We're yeah. gonna have to talk about Swaggy at some point. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So that's it. Good answers, everybody, and uh, hope you all had fun with that topic. Um, that'll be a wrap for us for this episode of Here's a Guy. So, as we always do, let's go around the horn and hawk our shit. Cody, we'll start with you. Uh, first and foremost, you can find me here most weeks. Uh, on Here's a Guy on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Son of Gravy for 2069. You can find me as often as we possibly can, and um, I, I'm sure we'll get a concrete date on when we're going next here soon over on a little Twitch channel that the three of us, plus our friends Pookie and Kelsey uh, that were mentioned earlier, have started called Here's an Adventure. We play D&D and uh, do... Uh, in the case of me this last week, make snap decisions that you think there's no way in hell are going to work, but your DM rolls garbage. Whoa. So a really stupid idea works perfectly. Uh, we're having a great time with it. Uh, Pookie is again, absolutely killing it, running this universe and, and getting us where we need to be. So yeah, we're having a blast. That like half hour of Pookie trying to like catch you in the act of lying and him just not being able to physically do it was just peak comedy. Yeah, and you know what? I would have been happy enough if it had just worked that first time to get us on the boat. <laughs> just because that was so off the cuff and it worked so well. But the fact that he kept trying and kept failing, and I, I, I just I felt bad for him after a while. All right, how about you, Jack John? Where can the people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jack John Jose. You can find me on my personal Twitch channel, Jack John Plays Games. Right now, I'm playing Skyrim with my steering wheel, and it's going as about as fun as you would expect it to be. Uh, and of course, find me on Belchcast, a podcast where Pookie and I drink beer and talk about nerd shit, and of course, on Here's an Adventure as well. All right, and for me, you can find me on Twitter at Turpin for Prez. That's Turpin the number four, P R E Z. Follow the podcast account as well at Here's a Guy Pod. Um, and hit us up at our mailbox. That's here's a mailbox at gmail.com. Send us whatever you like. We like it enough. We'll read it on the show. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, hope you didn't miss us too bad last week, but we're, we're so happy to be back with you this week. And so to wrap this up, as we always do, Cody, do you have a tagline? I do. All right. 
Well, thank you all for joining us. We will back be back with you next week on Here's a Guy. And to bring us home, Cody, hit us with that tagline. Remember, folks, there are a lot of problems in this life, and those problems have a lot of solutions. But the solution is never to beat the shit out of a first base coach at a professional baseball game. Good night, everybody. Bye, daddies.